0: Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, from Montreal at the Montreal Just for Last Festival. It's early in the morning and I want to tell you I'm very excited because I am here about to interview Kenny Hotz who is one of the most groundbreaking producers and actors and people of fame who have done something that has changed the course of television and I'm talking of course of the iconic show Kenny versus Spenny. Before I start I want to thank all of you so much again I know it sounds like a broken record, but you really are amazing. And here at the festival, I can't even count the number of people that have come up to me and said that they listen and they get a lot out of it. So, as you know, what normally happens when I'm doing these podcasts is I will look at my guests and I will think of something that means something, the me. mirror will come to me or will channel through me. And this is kind of an unusual interview for me that I'm about to have because I don't really know Kenny Hotz. I've never really met him. If I have met him, he's forgotten about me, and maybe I have forgotten about him. But he looks very familiar to me, not just from the show, but I feel like I have met him in passing. But the point being is that I don't know him like other people know him. And so I'm just going by a feeling I have, and this is what I'm going to share with when i look at him and i see the footage that i've seen on the show which is the show that i'm most familiar with i see a show that is filled with what i like to call as you all know holy shit moments Mm -hmm. and but i also see a show that people still probably question which is is this real or is this fake and nothing is greater in the world than 10 years after you start something and people are still saying that's fake no it's not it's real i heard it's real they do that and when you create a debate as an artist in the work you do i don't care if you are working in a 711 and there's two managers and there's a debate over something you've done in the store that's unique that's never been done in the store and the other person's saying well I know he told you to put that up that way. No, he didn't. I did it on my own. Any time there's something that happens in any job where people are talking about it and questioning it, that's something that's going to get you to the next level. And again, I use the 7-Eleven reference, but the guy who does the thing that nobody's ever done before that creates attention, chances are that guy's going to get to manage the best 7-Eleven in town and then move up to work in the company. And so what these guys did, Kenny and his partner Spencer Rice, is create something that just you can't believe what was happening because it was part punked, part competition show, part scripted, part reality. It was truly one of the first hybrid shows that was ever out there that was really, really
1: really popular. And the odd couple and Laurel and Hardy and Abbott and Costello, it like to us it was, you know, based on fundamental Hollywood caricatures of the past.
0: Yes. I want to just tell you something about another thing that's very, very important in this business that I get from Kenny Hotz. I'm here in the room. We're all here. We're prepared. We want to be prepared. And there's a knock on the door fifteen minutes before He's supposed to be here. He shows up. And we're prepared from them as best we can, but he's more prepared. And it goes by the old Vince Lombardi quote, which is, if you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. And if you're late, don't show up. And... The fact that I'm sitting across from a guy who literally was out last night probably till four in the morning looks like he's pretty much been drinking all night long his hair has that kind of look it's the kind of look of his hair that's either he went to a Sassoon salon or else he just woke up and that's the way it always is and so what I notice about the show is that when you can create something like that and literally drive forward something what appears like In the beginning, a lot of their own money and a lot of their own ideas and thoughts, and probably their own cameras at times, getting things going. Until it really got going and people started writing checks, it almost feels like before anybody really did anything on YouTube, these guys were creating things that they knew would get attention and would be funny, and. There's no way that you can watch these shows and not laugh. It's almost like watching Fear Factor as a comedy. And so what I wanted to point out to anybody listening is that, and it seems like such an easy theme, but the chances of success for all of you out there are always going to be if you're doing something that nobody else is doing. If you're doing something that might take certain formulas from the past that work that always work like a romantic comedy that you'll go into a theater and see and you'll know when you see a movie like train wreck yes you'll see some themes of things you've seen over and over again but you got to take those themes and then you got to put your own individuality into it and your own originality into it to make it something that's going to be really special And so what Kenny does, and I don't mean to compare him to anybody because I don't want to compare him to anybody, but like when you see a trailer for, let's say, Trainwreck, there's things that are so simple yet so groundbreaking and you don't really understand why hasn't anybody really said this in the movie or done something. Like, for instance, when in the Trainwreck trailer, Bill Hader says to Amy Schumer... I've only slept with three women. And she pauses and she looks at him and says, "Uh, so have I. And it's just so simple and so quick. And like Kenny does, where he can take anything really quickly and just do something that makes it funny and original and his own, even though I may have heard a faction or a way that he told the joke, but the way he did it was just in such an original fashion that I laughed so hard. And so to me, if I'm going to say anything to you out there in any profession you're in, please do everything you can to just figure out how to do things that aren't the way that people normally do them. I know when you get into a job, the whole thing is, is they give you the Bible. This is how we do it. This is how we put things together. This is how we've always done it. In a television show, you're working with a showrunner. You just hang over there. I'm going to write this in my bungalow. If you're a a stand-up comedian at the club, like, this is how we do it. You don't do this. You don't say this. You don't do that. But the fact is, once you start working yourself into the system, where you have that kind of performance in whatever job you're in that shows people that you're a true original, you can keep going and loosen the rope and loosen the rope and loosen the rope to where you get as much as you want to do and you can do anything you want to do. And then when the audiences come, whether they're inside your company or on a worldwide stage like Kenny and Spenny provided for people... You can't help but win and be successful because, as I like to say, America speaks and the world speaks. And so there's a reason why Kenny and Spenny starts on a little thing and then all of a sudden it gets bought by a bigger thing and then goes to the United States on Comedy Central. That doesn't happen if you're not doing something that's blowing people the fuck away. That's not happening if you're not doing original content that's not happening if you're not extraordinary and that's not happening if you're deniable so the fact is do all those things in your work and like this man next to me who has a great sense of humor and is a rebel and i'm sure has twisted a lot of people into a balloon animal where he worked but the fact is when your work is undeniable It doesn't matter what you say to people, how you are. No one can stop you after the world sees what you do. No one can stop you. And your content will always be king and will always take it to the next level. And I can guarantee you, if you use that example, you will never have a problem in in any business
1: you're in. Well, I, I see it as just, like, you gotta go. You just gotta go with your instincts, say whatever you want do whatever you want don't conform to anything just just be as confident as you can and do your shit and don't let anybody you know infiltrate your fucking art that's it just go 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 (laughs) Here we go in three, two... We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry cats see me. Infections caused by jacuzzi water.
0: I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking.
1: Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out on the
0: air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If
1: you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz.
0: (laughs) Here we go. You're f***ing firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments.
1: I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, very excited from Montreal with Kenny Hotz, and wow, this is going to be a great episode, I feel it. I need to give you the proper introduction, so please sit back, recline, and hopefully you won't slip into a coma. So here we go, everybody, because this is a long one, and I want to get it all in because this guy, we're going to have a fun time, and it's going to be very, very inspiring. Kenny Hotz is a Canadian comedian, writer, director, and actor and was born in Toronto, Canada. He showed promise and entertainment from a young age directing a film at camp that won an award from producer-director Henry Winkler at age seven. Upon graduating high school, he began to pursue documentary filmmaking and photography covering subjects including Auschwitz, Dachau... Waco, Texas, aftermath, and was the only registered Canadian photojournalist to cover the Gulf War. He graduated the Media Arts program at Ryerson Polytechnical Institute with his career in documentary, photo, and video journalism already in motion, having had his works collected in the National Archives and earning an award for Best Student Photo for a photograph entitled Behind the Mask. Upon graduation, he continued his pursuit of photography, and in 1994, he directed his first documentary short with his friend from childhood, Spencer Rice, a.k.a. Spenny. The short film, entitled It Don't Cost Nothing to Say Good Morning, covered the life and death of a homeless man and went on to win multiple awards at international film festivals. In 1996, Kenny directed his first feature film, again with collaborator Spencer Rice. The documentary, Pitch, starred the two as emerging young film directors trying to pitch a film to various celebrities at the Canadian Film Festival. The film won an award for Best Canadian Documentary at the Hot Docs Canadian International Film Festival. In 2004, Hots mockumentary, The Papal Chase, premiered in Canada, covering Hott's desperate attempt to meet the Pope. The film won great critical acclaim, including the Philip Barso's Award for Best Canadian Feature Film. In 2003, HOTS broke into the American mainstream with the award-winning television show Kenny vs. Spenny, based on a semi-fictional came-show format between contestants Kenny HOTS and Spencer Rice. The show went on to great success and critical acclaim, running for 90 episodes. Ending in 2010, the television show was nominated for the Gemini Award in 2005, 2006, and 2008. The Canadian Comedy Award in 2010-11 and was nominated for the Rose Dior for Best International Comedy Series. The Kenny versus Spenny format was rebroadcast and licensed to over 25 countries and as such is the largest selling Canadian program in history. And McLean's Magazine ranked the show number eight in its list of best Canadian programs of the 21st century. While Kenny versus Spenny was on the air, Hotz maintained his journalistic pursuits, and in 2006, he won an award for Best Fiction article from Vice magazine. In addition, in 2008, he created the television program Testies on the FX network. As such, he is the only Canadian artist to have two television programs running concurrently on major networks, which got them both canceled. In 2011, he starred in and produced the television series *Kenny Hotz Triumph of Will*. He has had two cameos in the film *Zack and Miri Make a Porno* and degrassi takes manhattan as of 2014 he and his partner spencer rice could be seen taking their hit show kenny versus spenny live on the road for an international tour which encompassed over a hundred dates ladies and gentlemen please welcome my guest i'm very very excited about it kenny hots thank you tell me the first time somebody wrote you a check and after they wrote you the check they had the meeting and they said this is great we're really excited listen this one part of the show i think it should be this way and we'd really appreciate it if you did this or that could
1: you tell us about that story and what happened well it, there were lots of times like that we were we went from from we were on cbc where we had kind of a bunch of soccer moms that had no idea what were, was going on uh, we were just delivering them shows, and I was cracking jokes about, you know, eating out, you know, 12 year old girls, and they didn't even get it. Like, they, you know, the shows would air, and my jokes were so, you know, <laughs> twisted and, and Dada is that, you know, I'd get the, you know, people would call up, these old ladies would freak and go, You just cracked a. a- you know, an insane sex joke. And we and it, it just kind of went over our, our audience's heads. And so a lot of like stuff like that happened because – Nobody really understood the genre or what we were doing. When we were when we started, it, I see it as the first reality sitcom. The only thing on TV like that was the Osbournes. We were pitching this show in L.A. long before it went to Canada. And they, they're going, is it a mockumentary? Because that was the only thing people could understand. And I was like, no, it's like a, a comedy documentary. It's more like a cockumentary and, you know, starring two guys. Um, but then we went to the first U.S. pickup we got was GSN Game Show Network because the presence kid found us online. And... He goes to me. He goes, you said fuck like three hundred times in one episode. Can you, you know, can you please just stop saying fuck so much? And you know, I felt bad because I was like, you know what? I just thought that the second I conform to any anything in any way, and I'm not myself. People are gonna smell it. It's gonna come through the screen, and 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 you know, people wanted me to wear makeup. I looked like a fucking panda with AIDS. You know what I mean? And pretty would always cake his face and put a spatula of fucking makeup on his face, and you know, I looked like death. And I thought, you know what? Somebody's gonna be changing the channel, and they're gonna see the only person on TV that doesn't give a fuck, that doesn't have makeup, and and they're gonna, you know, you know enjoy the believability and the originality of that and and i just wanted to be real and i think so you know, what did
0: you say to him in the meeting
1: i said fuck off you know here take no the honestly what did you say i'm sorry i'll totally take care of it because that's what you say but then you just keep delivering shows with fucking okay, well, because it is a business no this is important you here. have to kind of you know when somebody tells you something Listen, you're going selling a show to executives. They say do this. You go, oh my god, that's a great idea. I love that totally. And they go, well, why didn't you do it? And I said, well, we tried it and it didn't work. Like, you know, you have to, you know, I'm not too cool for the cash. You know, Willie Nelson says never be too cool for the cash. But it, you have to play the game. You know what I mean? You 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 have to play the game. It doesn't mean you have to abide by the rules at the end of it. But it, you know, when you're delivering a master right before an air date you just deliver the show you want. And you know what? And I think tons of people especially in Canada literally ruin their careers because they're listening to executives and not going with their instincts. You know, if if you're if you get a shot to do a show, it is fucking out of control. Like it is so fucking hard you could be a billionaire like you could do hundreds of episodes if you if you do it right or you do something that the audience picks up on or it migrates to a demographic or whatever but the second you start you know listening to fucking idiots you're fucked and and so there's been a bunch of shows in Canada that suck and these comedians get them and they're terrible and I bump in and I go what happened to your show it fucking sucked they go well the executives wanted this and it's like you know fuck it Look at you know Kaufman, Rickles. These guys are, you know, they, they're they're originals, and no one would kind of stop them. Rickles was on the roast, you know, douching Reagan and and uh, you know Frank and Hope. Like it's like, you know, that's he was true to his to his persona and that and and, and to his art, and that's you can, like I really think that Kenny versus Benny kind of transmitted to the audience. You know, the reality and and the truth behind just these two shitty idiots who are doing something that makes no sense for no reason. But we were so, you know, focused on on what we were doing that it became this, you know, ridiculous, stupid thing that women ended up loving. Like women love Kenny versus Benio. I never thought they would, but they loved it because. It shows that women are smarter than men you know we, we we're two you know narcissistic egomaniacal fucking idiots that portray the two male psyche one you know a super hot i don't give a shit cool uh bad boy and then the anal you know neurotic paranoid angry you know Um, Moralist, who was Spenny, so girls could kind of pick which which guy they liked. You know, the wounded puppy that they want to save, which is Spenny, or the bad guy that'll fuck the living shit out of them for 10 seconds.
0: (laughs) I have a show idea that I want to produce with you together. Schindler's Fist? (laughs) That you probably thought of about 700 times, and I'm not the first. Yeah. Why don't we produce the female version
1: of Kenny versus Spenny? It's done. It's been done. Where and well, we we've we've had like uh, formats all over the world. So we had, Andriana versus Mariana. But I mean, or in the United States, well, they did. We did the Dutch ones i don't know if you know i we did a lot of formats and i you know i went to bogota and london london england but and there's tried never to... been one in the united states have you pitched in the united states well we've been in the united states no i know that but i'm talking about you, the woman's you, version you know what happened is that comedy central did stole our fucking show did the exact same copy with charlie murphy and with our opening titles and uh well, why didn't you sue them uh, well, I didn't. Matt Stone saw it and said, what the fuck are you doing? You guys are fucking crazy. Kenny's going to sue the shit out of you. And he stopped it. But I, I was so, I couldn't believe they had the balls to do that. So they did a pilot. And then you drank their liquor last night at the party. Actually, I didn't go to the party. I'm not going to parties. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing now that. You mean you look like this without going to parties? Yeah, this is, this is me looking good. Girls like the Vincent Gallo. Dark eyebrow. <laughs> what shit. happened to Vincent Gallo? I used to love that guy. I don't know. Yeah. Holy shit, that's a great reference. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, girl, girls love dark circles. Before you got married, were you good with the ladies? Uh, I never really was. Well, I went to Hebrew school for like the first 10 years of my life, like day school. I didn't. So know you if, like women with wigs. I didn't know what a fucking chick was until I got to grade eight. And then, you know, the hottest girl in the school dated me and broke up with me because I wouldn't finger her. I was too scared. I learned quickly that, you know, uh, what to do with girls. With your fingers? With my fingers, my thumb and big toe. But, uh, you know, I was pretty, I was pretty... <laughs> I was pretty. Let's uh, back. Up. Can we back up to the girl
0: in eighth grade? I just want to know. Yeah. Just take us back to how the conversation goes, where she says, "Will you please use your finger?" I just want to know. Back up like five minutes and take me through the conversation. Uh, I think. Yeah. Just where day, are you? Are you wearing clothes? Are you sitting in a car? The day You're before, 13 years old. The I just day before,
1: I'm, i I just get to this school forest hill it was like 90g10 it's like the richest fucking school in forest hill in toronto and uh you know lauren michaels went there drake went there howard shore went there the famous composer
0: definitely dropped more names than
1: oscar schindler yeah he's got a lot of names see Um, two schindler jokes in one thing that's true um And so her friend walks up to me and she goes, do you like that girl? And she was like putting stuff in her locker because she liked me. And I said, well, I'd like her if she shaved her armpits. This was I didn't even know this. And then the girl shaved her armpits that night. And then uh, we hooked up and what do you mean you hooked up? Well, we just started making out and stuff. And uh, supposedly later on, uh, she ended up breaking up with me because I wouldn't do anything with her. But I I didn't I, I had no idea that this girl I, have a, I had a really hard time thinking that like a girl wanted to have sex with me. Like even now, you know, I, if I have sex with my wife, it's like I can't believe like you're letting me do this to you. It's just it's so it's so brutal that you would let me do this to you. It's just weird to me. It created a beautiful child. It did. It created a beautiful child. I've created a lot of beautiful childs. and just didn't keep any of them. Do you know of all of them? No, ugh, No, but every year on Father's Day, I go to the city dump and wave at it and throw bags <laughs> of Jolly Ranchers into it. Sorry. <laughs> too soon too soon
0: (laughs) so you mind taking me way back to the beginning of your family and where you grew up and what kind of environment it was and then what was the first inspiration to be able to do things that were considered entertainment
1: I uh my my family's like um well they got chased at it you know thank god for the pogroms Every Jew would be dead if it wasn't for those shitty Russians that raped us all in, you know, the early 1900s. My grandfather was lined up with a bunch of Jews in like 1910 or something. They were all shot. He blew his ear off and he lied down in a pit pretending he was dead. And he's like, fuck this shit. I'm going to Hamilton, Ontario. Went to Hamilton. They started a scrap metal business. And so I and I come from a morbidly obese family. So, so. Define morbidly obese oh, my, versus I, my, obese. I my uncle AB looked like that fucking purple chick from Willy Wonka. You know, like he he was so fucking big. He and he was such a he was such a comedy guy. He's, he 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 touted himself in his cards as Canada's largest scrap dealer because he was he used to go to the scrap dealing conventions. He was the fattest guy there. So all the signs on Hots and Sons in Hamilton said Canada's largest scrap dealer, and it was just because he was fat. You know, like he used that. But you're not big. No, I'm not big. Thank God. Are your parents big? Um, No, my dad was basically one of the only skinny hotses. And um, but, you know, the thing is, he, you know, worked out every day and and, you know, died on the handball court at 72. And his fat brothers who kept salamis in their pockets uh, lived an extra 20, 30 years. So now it's like, fuck working out. You know why? You know, he taught me so many lessons about life. But back to the...
0: You don't want to work out and...
1: I'm not, so your I'm wife finds out. you very yeah, I'm going to
0: work out and die. That's what my dad taught me. So yeah. because your dad died working out, you're not going to work out. Correct. Do you think if your dad were looking down and talking to you, he'd say, what the fuck are you talking about? Work out. Or would he say, no, just... Do whatever you want.
1: Yeah, I'd say, I can't believe I was was working out. I've totally fucked up.
0: I remember Dennis Leary, one of his first bits was he used to smoke four cigarettes and blow it out and say, I love the fucking smoke. People are always saying, why do you smoke? Why do you smoke? Why don't you exercise? He said, you know, Jim Fix, you know how he died? The guy who wrote all the books, he died jogging. You know who discovered him? Two smokers. (laughs) Oh, look, it's Jim Fix. (laughs) Yeah. But your dad would tell you to keep working out. So why are you not
1: working out? Uh, I don't think he would tell me to work out. You know, the reality is I I grew up with the nicest, sweetest family. They were so supportive of me that, you know, I became kind of a comedian because— my family was so, like, my family was just kind of, like, a salesman would come to the door with a fucking vacuum cleaner, and they'd be like, come in, and I would just slam the door on him. You know, I was kind of like the black sheep, but they were so happy that I would slam the door on this shitty guy selling, you know, filet mignons wrapped in bacon. I'd come home, and mom's signing a check. We were poor. Signing a check for, you know, 20, you know, uh, filet mignons wrapped in bacon. Like, we're fucking Jewish. And I'd just rip up her check and, and slam the door. So, so I hated seeing my family get a, taken advantage of because my dad was so nice. And I kind of started this, you know, it kind of started this whole kind of getty versus spending thing years ago. And I also had an older brother that used to beat the shit out of me all the time. How much older was he than you? Three years older. So I, my brother and his friends, we would come back from Hebrew school and they would come and they would beat the living shit out of me. One day I went and I grabbed a bunch of steak knives and I started whipping the steak knives at them and they stopped. And I learned, oh my God, if you do something crazier than they do, like it actually will stop you from being abused. And so I kind of used my quick wit or whatever to, cause there was a lot of bullying back then. Like, you know, you're some shitty kid in a, in a f- fucking school uh people like you. you know it's you it, it like a, a playground's like a prison you know you you have to own your shit or you will you will get totally fucking abused so Chris
0: Titus once told me the philosophy of his dad was say hey son, listen if somebody beats you up in the schoolyard, you need to go back there the next day I need to walk right up to that guy and beat you up and you need to punch him as hard as you can in the face, and you're gonna get the shit kicked out of you again. But then he will never bother you after that. Yeah,
1: and that yeah. was your philosophy. Yeah, and and also you have to be funny, like to survive. So so you got great. your sense of
0: humor by diffusing people who wanted to
1: beat the shit out of you, and by tr- and by helping my family, and by you know trying to be cool and you know all that you thought the old nazis went to argentina they all went to my fucking hebrew school and taught us like the stupidest shit ever like you ever want to turn your kid off of judaism send them the fucking hebrew school where you got to do homework on noah's ark they're trying to convince me adam and eve like a talking snake started the world i was like are you guys fucking retarded <laughs> we all know xenu from scientology started the world <laughs> So you're dealing weed. That was your first job. Weed, hash, yeah. I called it prohibited commodities brokering, and I made a lot of money.
0: So even though my first movie that I ever worked on was half-baked, believe it or not, I don't have a clear understanding, as probably most of our audience don't, on the business of drug dealing. So tell us, firstly, as a teenager, who do you buy
1: from first? Well, I'll tell you, there's... there's specific rules to drug dealing. Okay, could you go over them with us? Yes, first, you must constantly have drugs. That's the important thing. So it's like someone knows that they can always go to you and get drugs even if there's a drought or anything. Secondly, you can never ever rip anybody off. You can charge them way more than they're supposed to pay. I sold a gram of hash once in grade nine for 50 bucks. Like that's how good I was. I was like a master of, of selling drugs. And, but you could never, ever undercut anybody. Like you could never rip anybody off. You could never give them less than weight. So if I, somebody bought an ounce of weed, I give them an ounce of weed. Like, so when they go home and weigh, it's not 27 grams or, or like you can, you can really overcharge anybody. Cause you cannot, what I used to say is not, look, I, this is it. I only have an ounce. Like I can't sell it to you. And, and because I grew up with a whole bunch of rich Jews, the power of no. Yeah. And uh, so that was my thing. They knew uh, Kenny was expensive, but he always had the best drugs and he'll never rip you off. But I didn't like doing it. I didn't want to do it as, you know, I came from a really poor family. Like, you know, and, and, you know, we lost our house in the seventies and then lived in public housing. Like it was shitty. But
0: you're a teenager and your parents are poor. But there's a decision to sell drugs and they have to see somebody who's doing it. How did it come about? And then how did the person who you saw was doing it? Why would they want you to sell drugs too when they're making money? Like, how did you get into it initially, the first thing? Like, how do you get into drug dealing when you have no knowledge of anything?
1: Um, well, you, you're spending money which is the, on your own drugs. Yeah, you're spending money on your own drugs, which is really So you, so you want to you want to do everything in your power to pay as little as possible for the drugs that you're doing. Got, and you're buying them from a specific person. Hey, of course you're buying them from specific people and then, you know, I you know, I really think people, you know, as a baby are the the pers- personality that they are for the rest of their lives unless they get diddled or get hit in the head in a car accident, you know, but you know, so I think you know, I was a very, very likable diplomatic guy and people like me and I was never an asshole to anybody. So I ended up meeting a lot of people. And, you know, I met people who had, you know, access to weed. And so luckily, because people like me and they wanted to hang out with me and I went to parties and house parties, I, I hooked up with people who could get me weed. And a lot of people aren't like that. They can't, you know, kind of just have access to be trusted like that
0: now where do you have the money to buy the weed if your
1: parents were poor uh you can always just say look just give me an ounce i'll pay you back or you know so and eventually you kind of stockpile and you have cash like that and it's easy but drug dealers want to sell their drugs but don't they realize that you've
0: taken their drugs and now you're competing with them
1: no, no, because they, they don't have access to the demographic. Either. Nobody had access to this school's, you know, crowd. My brother was three years older, so all of his friends and all of my friends, you know, they just wanted weed. they were all, you know, this is like, you know, guys who are into Zeppelin and Springsteen and Deep Purple.
0: So you buy an ounce of weed for, let's say, at the time. Let's say it's two hundred. After you break it all up and sell it in little compartments or whatever, yeah. what do you sell it for? 300,
1: 350, maybe four hundred. So you make double the money. Two hundred or... bucks. Like how the fuck? You know, and I was a busboy. Listen, I worked in the shittiest fucking places. I worked in at the exhibition, like you know, at the I was a carny, like thirteen years old, working in the dart, you know, working balloon darts and. Uh, and uh, one day some guy goes, are you a Jew? And I go, yeah. And they fired me. And so I rip my shirt. I go in the back. I rip my shirt, go into the cashier, grab all their money. And I call a cop over and he said, just call me a Jew and tried to beat me up. And I must have taken four, 500 bucks out of the cash. I said, fuck you. And I walked away and they didn't do anything. So, wow. you know, it's just like, you know, it's just... I always had some street, street sense back then, which was really lucky. And we kind of had to fend, we always kind of had to fend for ourselves. Okay, so you're selling drugs. You're probably making at least a thousand a week. Then. Oh God, no, no. You know, you just told t- me you get two hundred free. Yeah, day. but you know, it wasn't like that. You know, eventually I had like once I had like ten kilos of like Manali hash in my house, and my friends who were drug dealers, I kind of stopped drug dealing, and then because I lived on some massive ravine, I was storing their drugs for them. So when they were getting busted, all of their shit was at my house. I lived on some you know ten thousand foot ravine and in it i built uh a box and i put dirt over it and you know it was under a tree somewhere that no one would know and then i used to go into my backyard and and open it and pull out a kilo of hash for them it shit got crazy what's the most money you've ever made in one transaction (sighs) it's so long it's 35 years ago um you know i was i was always paranoid and i just had cash so i could go have fun i never really wanted to like i was always so scared of the cops and like prison and all of that stuff i never i never really did anything that would jeopardize my you know my um you know life and was your entry
0: to meeting girls the fact that you had the drugs and you'd be like hey i got a joint you want to go smoke one well
1: my house my mom was from a kibbutz so she loved people around her and so my house was like a kibbutz like we always had people over like i kind of started in the biz because there was a library that had ten thousand films so me and my friend broke into the school one night 13 years old and i stole like this bell and howell movie projector and then they had the movies on reel to reel, on reel to reel. So I went into the libraries because I was a filmo. And I like every weekend I would get like the most insane movies like Eisenstein's and and, uh, you know, Renoir's and all these incredible fucking movies. And I'd have movie nights in my basement where everyone would just go and smoke cash and we just watch all these insane movies and shorts like Polanski shorts and and um, Lenez and all these like crazy like D- Buñuel B- 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 and Dally's and and like. And how old were you at this time? 13, 13, 14, 15. Thirteen, and yeah. you had
0: that kind of sense of
1: yeah, yeah. And so uh, my 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 basement was like a cinema where all the uh, all the friends would come and,
0: and now thirteen we, all, year old boys and 14, girls would be 14. interested
1: in these movies. Yeah, because there was three channels back then, and there was nothing to do. And you know, you're, you're you know, some times you were putting on like I was getting Bakshi's, like Ralph Bakshi movies on film. You know, Heavy Traffic and Fritz the Cad, and or um, you know. For those of you who don't know, Fritz the
0: Cat was the first X-rated animated movie yeah. in history. I
1: was in the Toronto Public Library, you know, and uh, yeah, it was really, it was, you know, it totally inspired me to go into the biz and do that stuff just because I was like such a fucking film addict.
0: Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. So, just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. All right, so what's the next step for you in uh, becoming a person who creates, writes, and puts together on film or tape?
1: His so, what, own content? what happened was my brother older brother three years older was the most incredible artist like he was so fucking good he would you know we had comic books as kids and we had a massive comic book collection and he would draw like these fucking you know michelangelo like hands and and do like the coolest like the coolest art and robots and superheroes and shit and i couldn't fucking draw i couldn't draw where shit And it always made me so mad that he was such an incredible artist. Like it was, it was just, it would blow my fucking mind that I just, I picked up a camera for my, when I got my bar mitzvah cash, I bought a camera, a Canon AE one and I just started taking pictures. So I felt like I could create art my parents asked me, "Do you want a bar mitzvah?" And I was like, uh, "And they go, you, you know, you'll make a couple grand off the film, <laughs> <they're> Like, 'Cha-Ching.'" <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, I remember my, my bar mitzvah. I remember one
0: passage. Let's see if you can sing one of your passages of what your bar mitzvah. Is. Oh fuck! I'll start. Well,
1: I speak. I kind of speak Hebrew because my mom's Israeli.
0: Got it. So but, I'll start the one I remember.
1: Yeah. Let's see if I can get the cadence down. Uh <laughs>
0: The
1: ancient tongue of Jesus.
0: I've never done that before <laughs> singing my bar mitzvah. Well, you know Kenny what? Ha- the, good,
1: the good thing is, like, we had this this cantor that taught us all. The guy was like 117. <laughs> cantor Soberman. We used to call him Cantor Not Soberman. <laughs> The great thing about the Jewish race is, you never get molested by rabbis. There's only one just, thing. There's two. They're too lazy to molest you. <laughs> they're just. There's no money in it. You know what I mean? So fuck it. You know that's a great thing. Why? You be let's, diddled let's, by a, a priest? <laughs> why don't you think rabbis diddle people? <laughs> like I said, there's no money in it. How is
0: there money in diddling people? There in the isn't, That's why they didn't do it. No, but what's the, where's their money in the priest? Well, oh, I'm they're, I, I they're not Jews. Okay, okay. They don't care I'm about sorry, the money. I'm not even thinking. Yeah. <laughs> There's no money. Yeah. I'm sorry. I lost you on yes, that one. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. No, I, I don't know. Listen, it was. Uh, Everyone's <laughs> dishonest. No- I don't want this to be a Jew thing, but you know, even being here in Montreal, where everyone's a fucking anti-Semite, is so brutal. Now I don't think the world knows that Montreal is anti-Semitic. Why well, everyone's anti-Semitic? We are. We're like the problem is nobody even realizes how much people hate the Jews. It's only the Jews realize like how much everybody hates us. Everybody thinks like, we're fucking paranoid, neurotic, you know, freaks. I think
0: sometimes, you know, when you're in a population that has some issues, when your
1: own people hate your own people. Well, listen, those Hasidic Jews look like fucking vampires. Like they are like they're like these conniving like, like with the, the greasy hair and the hats and the, the, the frills off their head. They, they're fucking freaks. They look like fucking freaks. No wonder people hate us. Uh, All we want to do is cure fucking cancer and make people laugh. You know what I mean? Not in that order. Yeah. But at least ISIS is around now. So hopefully everybody realizes, oh, this is what the Jews have been going through for 6,000 years. They're cutting off each other's heads and Christian heads. So Finally, someone's chopping off Christian heads, you know. I hope we I hope the Israelis actually started ISIS. That would be the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I would love that. I would love to know that we're responsible for everybody else realizing how shitty radical Islam is. But any radical Jew, any radical religion are fucking idiots, you know.
0: So when you think of the Muslim religion, is it similar to Judaism where the Muslims look at other Muslims and, oh, God, these people are ruining it for all of us. We're just trying to be here and those people,
1: look at these extreme people are doing this. I'm just trying to have a life here. Well, the difference between the Muslims and the Jews is, like, in, in Jews, the women wear the pants in all the families. Like Women are in control of everything. The Muslims, they, you know, they don't even give the wife a driver's license. The Jews are like, you drive. <laughs> you know, because it's a free chauffeur. Like we just, like not the one you blow the yeah uh, okay yeah, but uh, so you know it's who you know in the Israeli army women are teach everybody how to fight. Uh, I just think you know who are you for who are you going to be for a place where women are treated like totally respected as equals and basically you know run the show, or a, a religion where women are treated like total shit.
0: No, it could be argued based on your persona. That if I were to ask you in a soundproof booth,
1: are women equal to you, you would say no. No, they're smarter. I think they're better. I've originally, starting up in my life, I thought women were, I thought women were the fucked up ones. But now being a guy, like Kenny versus Spenny proved to me that men are the fucked up one. And that's why I don't think a women could do Kenny versus Spenny. I think they'd be sitting there going, no, you know what? I won the last one. You win this one. And and the guys are like we like we're doing we were doing shit that is so stupid that made no sense that Spenny thought was important and I didn't. To me, Kenny versus Spenny is I don't care versus I care. That's it. Is that he cared about something that was totally meaningless and I did I didn't. Like I did. I cared about humiliating him and crushing him (laughs) and making myself lovable, you know, because I'm a narcissist. I want people to love me. So people love me when I, when Spenny is angry and mad. So I just pushed his buttons. I made him as mad because conflict is comedy. So to have a guy that I could make as conflicted as possible, that was my job. That was my only job in Kenny versus Spenny is to make him as funny as possible.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay, well, let's keep going here. So you're doing the film festivals. What's the first thing you do? that you shoot, that you produce, that you direct, that you star in.
1: My parents sent my brother and I to film camp, to movie camp Mm -hmm. in Toronto. It was a national film board camp. I was six years old. Mm -hmm. So I made my first movie when I was six. And they put us into groups with all these people and I instantly became like, you know, the director. You know, I was like, like reinstalled, just going. You do this, you do that, and so I made all these kids make a movie called uh, "What Was it Called." It's like Two Hots" or something for you. And I, it was, it was just like I just controlled them all and made them do it. And that's kind of how it started. But when we were doing film festivals, we I, we did another short about this homeless, foul-mouthed dwarf named Shorty Gordy in Toronto, and he died during the movie. Um, he got hit by a car. And I had to back over him three times to do it, but no. what an ending. <laughs> and uh, so that went to like Uberhausen and all these weird film festivals, which was great. And we got a little taste of it. And then we made a movie called Pitch, which was about spending and I trying to sell a script. And, you know, we were the first guys to ever go to a film festival. And, you know, I'm trying to make – we have a legitimate script that we're trying to sell. And I'm running up to Al Pacino and fucking Roger Ebert and all of these people. And it's on YouTube. It's called Pitch. And, like, genuinely trying to sell this fucking script. So it got really big. And, and we had a gala in Toronto. and And journalists were saying that there's more stars in this movie – by not being able to make it than there would have been if I ever made the movie. But then, you know, while I cornered Neil Simon in a parking lot in LA and he's in the movie and he, he, I was like, Mr. Simon, please. We're such big fans. Like, you know, um, this is a heartbreak kids. Like our favorite fucking movie. Like, please, uh, can we interview you? He goes, no, no, no. He goes, I don't do that. And I go, please, Mr. Simon. Like I, for spending was going good. Come on, let's go. Let's go. I go, Mr. Simon, we're two Jews from Toronto. You have to help us. And he goes, Oh fuck. Okay. Follow me home. He invites us into his house and we get there and, 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 or oh, we tell him what we're doing, and he goes, what, you wrote a mob, co- the, the script that we're trying to sell him pitch is a mob comedy of, you know, the, uh, Scorsese-esque mob comedy. And he says, what the fuck you writing a mob comedy for? Like, write what you know, do what you know. And that kind of always stuck with me. And that's what Kenny versus Spenny is. And that goes back to the whole thing about... Go with your instincts. Just fucking like a laser. Be the most true to yourself as you possibly can. And that originality and uniqueness and voice, the only voice that you have, you have to fucking use it and don't listen to any other shitty people. And if you get a career out of it, great. If you don't. You know, you didn't suck anybody's dick and you didn't, you know, you didn't ruin your fucking life. So, so I, ever since I kind of heard, you know, Neil, Neil, tell me that, that's when I really was like, oh, okay, I'm just gonna do whatever the fuck I want. And I can always go sell drugs if it doesn't work. But the thing also that I should point out that
0: is fascinating about the two of you when you're in front of Neil Simon, and this is so great, and what a what an amazing lesson for the audience. One of you is saying, Mr. Simon, please, please. I know you've said no uh, you know, times. 50 times in this conversation, but please. And each objection that he has, you're trying to figure out another angle. Yeah. In the sales business, normally five objections, and your boss will tell you, just walk away, just say, thank you so much. We understand you're not interested. You know, like if you go into a health spa or a gym, like Equinox, if you go in, the salesperson like, gives you the tour. Will that be cash, check, or charge? Ah, I don't have any of those on me. Oh, that's okay. Well, just uh, leave your wallet here. You can go get it. Well, I don't have my wallet. Okay, that's okay. Let me just take down your social socials. Yeah. I don't like giving that. And after five, you're supposed to give up.
1: Yeah. But you didn't give up. No, and in fact... You know, I, I think if you're going to be a notable celebrity that, you know, instinctually you do that to be loved by people. And Spenny and I are totally different. He won't sign an autograph. Anybody walks up to me. He's like head down, barrels past him. Uh, any person that sees me, I give him an autograph. I give him a selfie, like whatever the fuck they want. And once I was in the elevator with Julie Andrews on the phone with my mom. And my mom, like Julie Andrews is fucking, you know, you know, Allah. To my fucking mom and i go oh miss andrews could you say hi to my mom she's no 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 i don't do that and i was basically you know what fuck you like why the fuck did you get into the business that you just can't like she's staying in a hotel room next to me like oh like you know isn't this why you're in the business just for like three seconds to say hi to, to some 80 year old jewish lady and make her life complete like fuck you and what did you really say i said i go you know what you're fucking bitch i did i said fuck you and what did she say she sucked me off. Okay, just checking. Because that's that was her thing. <laughs> okay, so I want to go
0: back after the Julie Andrews suck offs, because again, what I'm trying to point out here, which is I think is important, you have two different philosophies of two different people. If Spenny had been there alone with Neil Simon, they never would have gone to Neil Simon's house. Never, because Spenny took no for an answer. Instantly. Now, instantly
1: and has no confidence and couldn't believe he could do any of that stuff in fact in the movie pitch any single time i walk up to a star like and there's 50 fucking stars in a whoopee and and uh oh my god stoltz and 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 like I, I, i can't fucking remember but like you know i'm the person that did it you know so any time that we confront a star or get into any office, I get into Arthur Hiller's office. This guy's a president of, you know, motion pictures. And Samuel Z. Arkoff, I got into his fucking office.
0: And so it's all from, and this is something that people don't understand, is the worst thing that can happen with Kenny when he goes up to anybody, the worst thing that can happen when he goes up to Neil Simon is that, the same exact thing that happened if he didn't go up to Neil Simon. Yeah,
1: or that my shitty friend's dragging me away so it's don't do this. So so what happened was I was I you know Spenny thought oh we're going to sell this script in this movie and I said it's fuck it like we got to make a funny movie so I was cracking all these jokes and he comes to me and go stop cracking jokes so there's this was one with me with this big guy when did
0: Spenny turn into Nixon
1: yeah he's a, he's a fucking idiot he didn't it doesn't even get it like let me be me you fucking idiot
0: but this is what I don't understand this is something that a lot of creators go through and why they want to work alone is because there's always the perception that one person is more valuable than the other. If there's two people selling the brand of Kenny and Spenny, and one is walking through Las Vegas Casino with their head down, not shaking hands, don't talk to me, the other one's an ambassador yeah. for the show... It's very easy when you get back to your hotel room in Vegas to say, what the fuck? I'm doing all the work here. I'm the one who's the ambassador. This guy sticks his head down. When we try to do something special, he's always saying, let's get out of here. I'm persistent. Why the fuck am I splitting my money 50-50? That was
1: the great thing that we were Total yin and yangs, and that's the the mastery behind Kenny versus Spenny is that we're total opposites.
0: Yes, you're fifty percent partners on screen and it's yin and yang,
1: but off-screen. Yeah, he destroyed he destroyed Kenny versus Spenny. Because to have a Spenny in your show that's real. You have to deal with the off-camera stuff, and he—he—he's a bridge burner, and he—you know—when we met Matt and Trey, they were mega Kenny versus Spenny fans. Spenny meets him on an airplane coming to Toronto to to promote uh, Team America, probably one of the greatest movies ever made. And just so the audience knows, Matt and Trey—they
0: are probably the most critical people when it comes to any kind oh, of content. I got it. And you know from my understanding. The only show that they ever endorsed that they love so much was Kenny versus Spenny. Which
1: was so surreal because he put shit out there, you never know where it's going to land. But so Spenny came out that night with us and he got so fucked up, so wasted. They bounced him out of the restaurant we were in and they said, don't ever bring him out with us again. But they knew... You know, they they said to me, we thought you were the fucked up one. But they knew the second they met Spenny that it was real. And and then they luckily got us on Comedy Central until I fucked that up with Testies. But that's a whole other story.
0: Tell me how you decide to do these things with Spencer because there's a lot of people around you that are funny and unique and doing things. Cause it seems like you were the leader of men and women and he was more of a follower kind of person. And so I would imagine you were in control and you chose who you wanted
1: to be a partner with. Why did you choose Spencer? I was a filmmaker and he wasn't, but he was the guy. I was a stoner and he used to come over to my house and wake me up in the morning. And drag me out of bed and make me shoot stuff. So he originally was the guy who forced me to make movies. He was the hardest working guy that made me, you know, work. But I would edit everything and shoot everything and put everything together. And he would just hang back. and. But
0: this is what's amazing. With you, he does what you do with Neil Simon. But then... In other places where he could really use those
1: skill set that he used with you, he doesn't use them. Doesn't use them. Why? Because when we started doing Kenny versus Spenny, I cut everything, I edited everything. And this is a true story. CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Company, picks up 26 episodes. They've never picked up anything like that. Like, all of a sudden, after doing this movie pitch, I get 26 episodes on the CBC. It's like, What? you know so what was the budget per episode 100,000
0: 100,000 100, Canadian so you got 2.6 million yeah yeah and it's a nice little executive well produ- for two shitty nice kids that there, you know man. been
1: you know doing nothing and did they make you hire a production company yeah we we hired a production company Under that stipulation that, you know, our deal deal was like, nobody has creative say. We have creative say, and fuck you, we're not doing the deal unless you... And we had full creative say. So nobody could even touch our shit.
0: But again, you still got to take me to that point of
1: how it happened. What you started doing that got you to the point... So so we did pitch and and pitch. We went into film festivals and we did the U.S. Comedy Fest. But you did get release forms from anybody. Yeah, we got. Yeah, we got release forms. Yeah, in pitch we got release forms from every celebrity. No, on when we were on the red carpet, you know, and I'm pitching, you know, uh, Matt, whatever the fuck, fi- I can't even remember. Like we're pitching all these celebrities. We didn't need a release because they're in a they're on the red carpet. It's you know paparazzi shit. Anyways, a movie came out the day at toronto the day lady die got killed by paparazzi and we got a whole paparazzi movie which made us like pariahs anyhow which kind of helped in the end but um um that movie went to a bunch of festivals all over the world and went to the u.s comedy fest in 99 and um it was like will smith's friend saw it and then Uh, Will Smith's company, Overbrook, sent us to LA, gave us each 20 G's and said, you want to go sell TV? But we, what happened with Pitch was we went to Dublin and we saw people like, Spenny and I ended up fighting in the movie. Like when we couldn't sell our script, we turned on each other and we started fighting and we're watching these movies all over the world and everybody's laughing when we're fighting you know it's like like they loved it like people are so fucking sick that they loved us you know just turning on each other and kenny versus spenny is really pitch is we sell a script and kenny versus Penny is the first person to sell the script wins we just go you know we just compete and that's the simplest little tweak that just really worked and you know so we go out to sell stuff but there's one little twist at the end
0: there's a penalty.
1: Yeah. That paid homage to Tom, who's a very close friend of mine. His stuff, he was the new Kaufman. His stuff was revolutionary. We're sitting at home smoking hash, watching SCTV and Tom Green. It was the funniest shit we've ever seen in our lives.
0: Now, did he look at the show and say,
1: they're stealing from me? Uh, hopefully. Bought him enough dinners. But it was the, you know, Jackass, Tom Green and Derek Harvey, these guys wrote every bitten Jackass and Jackass stole all of their shit. Nobody knows that. When, when Tom Green got fired from, from MTV for having testicular cancer, they wrote a book and every single sketch that they wrote was given to Johnny Knoxville. So when you see Knoxville and Jackass with that baby thing on top of the car and the guys driving away, Tom Green wrote that. Those guys wrote that. So they stole all of their shit, and it started them, you know. But whatever, that's a story. Listen, a comedy, like it, it, it's an but evolution. Tom, but you
0: and Tom Green, did you have a good relationship
1: after Kenny and Spenny? Well, yeah, no, I actually met him in '96, and we've been friends ever since. But yeah, but you know, the reality was there, there. It, it was such. A, it was a little snippet, a, a, a mini vignette at the end of all of our shows, and 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 even though. You know, we never did anything Tom Green did. Tom Green was, you know, lighting his feet on fire and walking down the street. Like he was doing the most surreal, absurdest shit. We're, we, ours was totally different. Ours is I'm making Spenny Bob for apples out of a toilet. For like just the, the entire, um, you know, persona of what we did and what he did were totally different. What's the worst thing that you made him do? Was
0: it the cracker with the pubic hair on? Oh my God! No, he's he. Now what's if you had to pick one
1: thing? Was the worst thing he you made him do? And what's the worst thing that you had to do? Oh my God. There's so many, but he did like, I, it was, first of all, it was impossible with Jackass and Tom and all these guys around to think of a humiliation. Like they did everything. It was like, Oh fuck. Jackass did it. Jackass did it. Jackass did it. Like to, to, to think of 91 humiliations that those guys hadn't done. And we, they didn't do any of our shit and we didn't do any of their shit. Um, was impossible. That was the hardest thing about Kenny versus Spenny. What do I make Spenny do? You know, chew my toenails, eat my boogers, like all of that stuff. But I think the worst thing was I scraped the mashed potatoes off of my tongue and I stuck it in his mouth. Why was it like Perry Mason? where there can be only one winner. Well, because <laughs> that's the ridiculousness of it. That's the stupidity, the finality, you know, you the focus. So We've, there were some that, some that we did where we both kind of lost, you know, and their crew made us make out and stuff like that, you know. So so there are some that didn't work. But I think the joy of Kenny versus Benny is if shit didn't work, we didn't pretend it worked. Like everybody, like we're idiots. So they go, like, oh, fuck, sorry, guys, we totally fucked this up and we move on to the next. Na- show got it okay do you shoot your own pilot episode together yeah we did we originally did a pilot for usa network and it was who could gain the most weight so but it
0: was the same show it was the same show and that was your pilot for usa yeah. you pitched it to usa and they give you the money for the yeah, pilot? Yeah, they gave
1: us nothing to do it. And then they pulled the plug while we were doing it. But because I was a filmmaker, I managed to finish the pilot. And and then our good friend of ours, John Moranis, who's um, fucking incredible, made us, um, took the show to CBC. We had palm trees in our pilot, and they had nothing. They had just they 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 had a tom green pilot like he was huge underground in canada they do a pilot for tom green they didn't pick it up next day the guy's on the cover of rolling stone they'll go fuck and we just happen to be the next guys in line with a pilot from with palm trees in it from la which is pretty prestigious in canada and they're like uh 26 shows you know, so oh, he opened the door for us. We walked through it. So
0: it airs in Canada. Very few things air here. There's probably one sitcom now airing now that's original. Shitcom. Here. Uh, Mr. D. Mr. D
1: minus. Oh, Mr. F. <laughs> yeah, listen, multicams, multicam sitcoms. Fucking Lucy was doing it in 1953. All of a sudden, oh, yeah. So I take it you don't like Mr. D. No, nah, not really. <laughs> listen, yeah. it's not, not saying it's bad. It's just not for me. Do people like it here? I don't know. I have a demographic, and for me and my friends and my family, it's not for us. But, you know, I'm not into uh, Young and the Restless, and that's been on for 500 years. So who cares what the fuck I think? So your show premieres here in Canada. Oh, it premieres here. We're on CBC we fucking pop this is in, in it's like it glucknuck where there's like one tv that a bunch of you know ojibwe like families are watching with a coat hanger in it and all they get is kenny versus spenny and every prison like it was so subversive <laughs> it was you know we did a show that glorified the cheater that just went against the entire concept of canada that that just you know spat in the face of all our moral you know society and 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 it was just so unique and and absurd and different that that it popped tell me the first time
0: you realized holy shit this show is a hit
1: i was in chinatown with my family and some guys ran up to the table and asked for an autograph and they left my family was like jaw drop and i just went like this and my <laughs> well, fuck you for not knowing i'm famous
0: he just licked his middle finger and put it out for those of you just listening on audio. yeah it's like
1: fuck you like you know we knew i was doing some... why did you say fuck you because your parents didn't believe it yeah my family is like they're like oh that's crazy i go i'm on i have a great show on tv you fucking idiots like how dare you not like you know relish in my success um but i i you know i was a photographer and and I think any artist, like when you're doing, this is a great thing that when you're a photographer and you take a, 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 a role of film. You alone look at that role of film and I can see uh these are all shit shots. Oh, I got one picture. You know, nobody has to tell you what is a good fucking photograph. And I could see it and I knew to me what was a great photograph. And the same thing with Kenny vs. I We were doing shows and I knew, I knew this is different and it's fucking funny. And I know it's going to work. You know, and I, I was doing shitty, you know, you know experimental films when I was doing, you know, I was in I was in film school. I'm doing like, uh, you know, retarded, stupid, you know, experimental shit. And I'd look at it and go, oh, "This fucking sucks," you know, because I was into all these shitty, experimental guys. And, uh, but then, you know, when you, when you get something and you click and you trust your instincts, I, I just, I just knew, you know, I, I just knew it would work.
0: So you start blowing up, you start making money and now you have your own place.
1: Yeah. I lived, moved to LA in, in 98. I lived in a garage for five years at Chelsea Handler's boyfriend. I was living in his backyard in a garage for five fucking years. No car in LA banging fucking, you know, old, Jewish piggers so I could fucking eat like all of my everything I had my salt my pepper my napkins my toilet paper was all from Carl's Jr and back in my house I like I, I we were I had nothing living off change You know, so you know, I deserve it. Like, people just don't understand how much fucking work it is, or how insane it is. Like, you know, stand up looks easy. TV, you know, it's like people don't get like the sacrifices that you have to fucking make. Look, some people don't. You know, there's girls on YouTube who're putting on mascara, making a hundred grand a month. Like, sometimes it's easy, you know. But this is a this is a business where Citizen Kane never got released. You know what I mean? Like, how are Like oh, it's fucking crazy. Shit gets made, great shit doesn't, great shit gets made, nobody watches it, shit doesn't get watched. It's just there's no rhyme or reason.
0: So I don't think I understood that. So you actually left Canada with Spencer.
1: Yeah. Will Smith gave us twenty grand each and then we moved to LA. That was David TV.
0: Tochterman,
1: right? Yeah, Tochterman and uh yeah, Tocterman and, was a and guy. Lassard. Yeah, JL. JL gave us the cash and then yes. Tochterman, who I'm still is my agent, uh, at innovative artists, yeah, came and 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 did it. So we did. We went to the pitchathon. He got us into the pitchathon, is where Tom Green started, and it was a very big deal to do the pitchathon. So we go in front of Graydon, like the head of MTV, and all these Brian guys. Brian Graydon. yeah, and um, John um, John Miller, the guy who found Tom Green, brought us into the pitchathon, and we pitched our show in front of everybody. They gave us money to do a slideshow. I had no two grand or something. And we did first want to start a cult wins. And so Spenny went out with a sign and I went to the beach and, and try to, you know, like really like pretend I had seen God. And, and so, but we're doing a slideshow. I wish I still, I might still have those slides. And, and when we go in the room, Miller goes, don't crank any fucking Jew jokes. Like they're not do the Jew shit. So the second I walked around the room, I go, this isn't the Nusban Bar Mitzvah. <laughs> and his head goes down. And like that, we killed it with Thank God we killed it because if we had Kenny versus Benny on MTV to start, they would have given us nothing and they would never have let us pluck the fucking show. What happened was we get, we end up getting a deal at USA network with this guy, Steven Chow. He gets fired. Doug Hertzog from comedy central. My first guest on this podcast picks up, uh, um, cancels Kenny versus Benny. He does. not like it. Stupid garbage. He shows it to his kid, his 10 year old kid. Kid, this fucking kid didn't even laugh. You know what I mean? Like, who? What kid doesn't laugh at Kenny versus Spenny? So, so he he cancels it and then allows Moraines to pluck it from him. You can't do that anymore. Years ago, you could take a show that somebody develops, and eventually, Matt Stone convinced him to take the show, even though he hated us. And uh, then they they ended up pulling it. But uh, it's weird. It's just a full circle thing. The you know the pilot we did was who can gain the most weight and. And I secretly submitted it to iFilm back then. This is like 2000. iFilm was big. I submitted it secretly, illegally. CAA was so mad, somebody leaked it. And it got really big on iFilm. And uh, and then it supersized me. I know he saw that fucking Spurlock, that idiot. He's shitty anyhow. You don't like Supersize me? N- no. Not really. No, but I sat in a wheelchair and ate McDonald's for a week and gained 30 pounds. I lived on filet of fishes You know what's fascinating, Kenny? You
0: take a little homage from Tom Green and you're okay. Spurlock (laughs) does a little bit of what you do. A little bit. And he's not okay.
1: Well, when it comes to Spurlock and, and Roger, or what's his name, Michael Moore and stuff, like, you know... I don't know. I just see it. It was a little too blue-collar for me. You know what I mean? But that's not what you're alluding to. Yeah, I guess
0: guess you're right. A lot of artists do that. One of the things that I found out on the show, uh, I interviewed Gallagher. And I asked him, I said, did Letterman ever admit to you that he essentially borrowed or stole your watermelon thing and just dropping them at the fans yeah. and off the roof. And Gallagher said, if you notice, he had me on the show within the last year or so of him retiring and his whole thing, bring him on the show. And he took me aside and he said, listen, I just want you to know that I, I did do that. <laughs> and I was trying to honor you, what you were doing. And so it's
1: very common yeah well look spenny's uh chaplain slipping on a banana you know what i mean like comedy was like where did comedy start it's, it follows a fundamental rule and you can't avoid it and it, it's a tangent that people kind of manipulate and and
0: tell me something you did in the show that no one could look at
1: and say i saw that somewhere else well i'm i i Cracked a million jokes. Improv, like quick wit. I hate people who are like, you're not a stand up guy. It's like, fuck you. I've done 400 hours of improv comedy. You know and I hate improv, you know what I mean? So <laughs> you so, hate improv and you're a master at it. Yeah, but I, I to me improv is you know, I didn't write anything. I didn't sit down and actually do the work and write anything. So I, I if I go to an improv show, it's like, hey, Star Trek and uh, hey, what am I? Oh, you're a butcher. You know what I mean? So so I think you can use that as a trait to evolve into something probably like a talk show host or something. But Kenny versus Spenny was a show that was developed that highlighted both of our characters so perfectly. Just luckily that happened that I happened to fall into the perfect characterization of my persona. And Spenny, too, like we it, it amplified our foibles and made us totally free to be ourselves and go fucking ballistic. So so. Uh, 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 could, should I be blamed because you know in some of them I'm doing some characters that I, I reminded me of SCTV or or Python or you know the Goonies or whatever it's like well whatever this, these are these are you know we're, we all have our doctorates in comedy because we watched every fucking comedy show ever made and and it's got to come from somewhere so yeah it's an evolution and uh, did I, I outright steal anything I tried not to I don't like doing that I, I, I hated repeating a joke or someone else's joke but you know like i said i was a stoner in high school so i half the jokes i know i can't even remember who the fuck made them or if they're mine like who fucking remembers your brain is just this you know goulash of shit from you know from 48 okay who remembers anything if i didn't have my name on my fucking underwear i would would know who the fuck i was i wonder if calvin klein felt the same way yeah that's who i think i am I, i thought i was calvin klein Marcy Klein, the
0: executive producer of Saturday Night Live, I remember a great quote. She says, it's very difficult when I become intimate with men when they take off their pants and I have to see my father's name.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's
0: funny. So you're in Los Angeles. You're living in somebody's garage, probably not paying any rent. No, it was 500 a month. 500 a month. Are you living
1: with Spencer in the garage? No, Spenny eventually hooked up with some rich asshole chick he was such a fucking asshole. He started doing stand up, and he was so bad. But he was like, "Oh, you know, I'm so big now, and I'm so great. I can't hang out with you." I didn't have a place to leave my mail. I asked Spenny, "Hey, do you mind if I just take, send my mail to your house?" Like, "I'm you're getting a you know a Chase Manhattan bill once every year. Like, I had no mail. Maybe a a, a jury notice or something. Not even a Victoria's Secret catalog. Nothing. He said no." That he won't let me use his like who doesn't yeah, send your mail to my fucking house. I'll call you if I get a letter. Like who like what a scumbag. He was a dick. He uh whatever. He was a fucking asshole. Just so where was the bathroom got, in the garage? Uh there was yeah, there was a bathroom in the garage. <laughs> a shower? Yeah. a shower in a bathroom, yeah. It was like it was a kind of nice the garage. Uh no air conditioning. No and I had a, I was in Venice so there was an infestation of ants. Ants were dropping on me from the ceiling. Like it was like a f- it was fucking biblical. It was like th- the worst and I ended up stapling a bedsheet up there so you know the ants would fall on the bedsheet and I'd have to empty like once a month this massive fucking pile of dead ants. It was fucking brutal. So all your money runs out. No car. No five car. Years. 5 years. Do you have a day job? No. What am I an idiot? So- <laughs> well, I I was working, I was I had a friend who um- We had a catering company, so I was doing like the warp tour and catering. And then, uh, it's funny, I, I, my girlfriend when I was 16 turned out to be Joni Mitchell's long lost daughter. So Joni took me in, and I, you know, stayed with Joni for a little bit. And she got me a job at Lionel Richie's house next door. And, you know, I was sitting there at his house serving orangina to his shitty kids, like spending a day sitting in the corner at some bar. And one of the little shits wanted a fucking drink, I'd be pouring his juice. But he gave me like 600 bucks a day He was a super nice Generous guy $600 a day To be his own Private bar Yeah to serve Shitty drink Kool-Aid to his shitty kids Just
0: stay at a bar And serve Kool-Aid To his kids
1: Yeah If they wanted one So Nicole Richie You were serving her Yeah She wasn't around much But those other little shits Were there Just spoiled fucking brats and then I did some Scientology. I was shucking oysters at Scientology parties because my friend catered Scientology parties. And she's like, can you shuck oysters? And I went, yeah, of course. And then she'll go, well, be here at three o'clock. So I had to run to Santa Monica Seafood. And, and can you teach me how to shuck an oyster? And I like learnt right there like five minutes before I had to run to this fuck, take a bus to this fucking party. And, so you're uh you're taking
0: buses everywhere to Lionel Richie's house. You're taking buses. Yeah.
1: Yeah, in fact, when I lived with Joni, she would take me to like Fred Siegel to get my hair cut and everything was free. So, but I'd have to tip the washer 40 bucks for to get my hair washed and she'd take me breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but I couldn't be a, a schnor and I'd have to drop like $10, $20 on the table for every meal because I didn't want to get treated. And it was, it was costing me more to live there for free than I than I got to split.
0: But you said one of the most important things that people don't understand, and, and this is something that I always try to, when I started as a manager in part on comedians, when you first start headlining at comedy clubs, the most important thing to do is to overtip. Everybody, so you finish your week, and or every night you give each waitress a $20 bill, you give the manager and the doorman who took care of your people a $20 bill. And so the whole week, you might spend 20% of your money in the beginning on tips and say, What am I doing? but you will always go back because they remember yeah. the people that took and care of them. And they know
1: that you're poor and they respected. And I, I was, I bartended, you know, you live on that shit, especially in LA. You know, but even here, like I, I do that stuff all the time. So Spenny and I have played here five times at big shows. They give you some scale cash. I've never accepted the cash. I said, look, I don't want that fucking money. It's a, it's a privilege to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Go buy the girls some fucking Subway sandwiches in the office. And so they made me like a, you know, kind of consulting executive and i get a free J- jfl pass every year and i see the guys and i hug and i can come here anytime i want you know what i mean just because i didn't take 400 bucks for a couple of shows like you know fuck it it's not worth it
0: one of my favorite stories that i've told once on the show at the just for last festival is that i came here with Chappelle one year when i was managing him it was the first year he was like probably 18 years old and the travel just got all fucked up and we were just completely lost in transition we finally got here we were exhausted and then we got to the front desk and it was Debbie Siegel who is married to Gabe Sachs now and it was Maureen Tarran, who's a great executive and manager and we said, listen, a lot of this stuff got messed up, and we just want to let you know that that happened. And they were like, my God, you guys are so nice.
1: Yeah.
0: Normally when something gets messed up, people get so mad at us, they yell at us, they're so rude to us. I said, what do you do when somebody's mean to you and they don't treat you with respect and courtesy and niceness? Oh, she said, that's easy. Look over there by that pillar. I look yeah. over by the pillar, and there's an executive who I know and i said the, i'm looking at him what, what do you want me to look at you see how his laminate and his uh, the thing around his neck you see how yours is how it hangs down around down to your belly button with the laminate yeah I said, look at his laminate and i look over and i say well it seems like his cord that holds the laminate is like Too half sharp. as small as everybody else's yeah you notice anything else Yeah, it doesn't seem like centered. She said, that's right. We give the people who we don't like, who are mean to us, a cord that's half the length. And then we cut the hole on the corner so the tag goes diagonally so that everybody at the festival, when they run into that person, they know that's the asshole. (laughs) That's funny. And so you were nice to everybody all the time. Yeah. But you're struggling and you're trying to get things going and you're essentially one room away from being homeless. Yeah. Yeah. And the first big break you have, how does it happen? What happens five years? How do you keep the faith? How do you it know? It was tough.
1: It was really hard. I was having like, uh, honestly, like mini nervous breakdowns. I, m- my shitty friend got me in as an extra. Like I was fucking broke, like piss poor, seventy G's in debt by the time a guy Kenny Respenny, he got me this job as an extra, and and one one of these commercials was a deodorant commercial that I got on, and it's all of these football players, uh, you know, ready, and then these cheerleaders attacked one of the football players who had this deodorant smell, and the background was the stadium, and they put me and like five other people in the stadium. Can you sit there? So it looked like that. There was people in the back, like just some people in the background, even though I'm a photographer, it was a short focal length on the camera. They never saw me. And I was sitting there in the back for fucking eight hours, just sitting and, you know, quarter mile away is this commercial going. I was sitting there going, Oh my God, my fucking life is, this is the worst, worst fucking nightmare ever that I, I was just the lowest, on the totem pole in the entire fucking city for celebrity. Like, I I could not have been any lower at that moment.
0: And for those of you who don't know, even today, an extra probably makes $53 a day yeah. after taxes.
1: Yeah, it was, it was the worst nightmare ever. But I feel like life is kind of like a roller coaster that you can't really, you know, until you hit the fucking bottom. For me, at least, that's when I really got, you know, motivated and just fucking did what, you know, did my stuff. And my stuff was so, you know, um, like you could see the desperation in it, which I think the audience could relate to.
0: But that's the bottom, that's the lowest point. So tell our audience what happens to turn it all around. Why for five years you're doing things in a certain pattern and you're collecting ants in a sheet above your bed and why one day the pattern changed.
1: Because you would, in, because you're in L.A., you would intermittently just do these little snippets of content with people. And I would see them. like, oh, my God, that's so good. This is great. And I would show them to people. And, you know, I, I had like some friends come over and they'd they'd sit and they'd watch it. And they'd be laughing their heads off. In my room, like watching TV, and that gave me the inspiration going, okay, no, I'm going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And then the other thing is it's just like, you know, there's two types of people in the world, happy and unhappy. And I felt like I have a dream, and I'm going to do it. And if I quit, I'm going to fucking hate myself. And I knew, look, you know, you got it. James Dean was sweeping fucking floors trying to pay for, you know, uh, his 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 – you know, acting school in Maryland's, you know, flapping her tits in front of photographers so she could, you know, pay for acting class like, you know, you know, this is like nothing that that the Marx Brothers or or Three Stooges or any of these guys. It's it's a rite of passage to suffer in Hollywood and get the shit kicked out of you. And, you know, I'm I'm I know Hollywood and I know, you know, I I I, I know the drill. And I had to take it up the ass and, you know, it's, it's perseverance and luck. You don't even have to be good. If you persevere and you get fucking lucky, those two things, you can make it. And you just have to deal with it and it fucking sucks.
0: All right. So tell our audience what's the first thing that happened that turned things around and showed you hope and then showed you that, hey, holy shit it's finally happening.
1: Well, we did the we we got the Kenny versus Spenny pilot. Well, for first I got the MTV pilot canceled. Fuck fuck you. Then we got the USA Network pilot and I'm doing it and it gets canceled. They pull the plug, but I put it to I managed to put it together and it was so good. Like it was so unique and great and real and fucking indie and guerrilla. like I knew I I knew it was a new genre and I knew that it was it, it had uh an air to it. That was just totally, I I knew somebody out there would fucking get it. And so uh, somebody out there got it. And you know, like I said, we we had some, I had some friends that I could pass it to. And you know, there's a lot of people that will help you in LA, but they can only help you if you give them something to help you with, you know what I mean? So I just, I always wanted to give people something that, that they could use to sell so you know and it's the same it all goes back to photography you know if you have an incredible photograph you can sell it so you have to get that fucking picture you have to get that content people come up to me all the time what do i need to do to make it you know be fucking great just be great that's it
0: and so you similarly to going up to neil simon You get rejected in MTV through your own doing because you didn't listen to what John Miller told you to do. You said in the beginning of this that you have to play the game. And I believe in that instance, I'm going to go out on a limb. And that would be the one place where I would say it would be okay to not do any Jew jokes because that would never have affected how your content would have been. But I know what you were thinking and a lot of artists think this way. Well if he wins that battle then he's going to ask me another thing and then he's just going to own me for the rest of the thing. Yeah.
1: But that turned out to be a great thing like I said. It
0: worked out okay. It took you to the next place. But the next place you went they too crushed you like a bug. Yeah. So now you've got two definitive no's where you've been all the way at... It's almost like you're having sex with the girl, and just before everything's about to happen, she says, You know what? We have to go. But I haven't finished. We have to go. Yeah. And then you never see her again. Yeah. And so then, so you've been rejected twice, and the third time, what happens? And how do you stay focused and believing in yourself?
1: Well, what happens is so, you know, we get the CBC show, we're number one in Canada, number one at the broadcaster, they cancel us.
0: So after the rejection at MTV, after the rejection at USA, where you get to finish the pilot with the funds and don't realize it and you realize you can't sell it right then and there in the United States because USA will be pissed.
1: You show it to somebody in Canada, the CBC. They love it. Which was rejection for us. Like we were so upset that we couldn't sell the show in the US and we got to go back to shitty fucking Canada and go do the show. Why shitty fucking Canada? Because we're in LA. It's the factory. I'm, you know, sitting there, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, Charles Nelson Riley at Musso and Frank's and sitting next to, uh, like, you know, it's funny. Funny first time I ever went to LA, 98. I go to Sushi Co. in Beverly Glen to go meet some guys uh, who are friends of ours. And I walk in and I hit some lady in the face with a glass door. I just like Aah! and I look up it was Streisand I hit her in the fucking face. You know what I mean? Like this, this this is the place where you are, you know, where And then
0: did you say Barbara could you say a little my mom? She yeah. said, no. The Entel.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh i felt terrible but you know what i mean like that's what happens when you're in la you're in a place you're some shitty little kid from Bathurst and eglinton in toronto and all of a sudden you're you know you're bumping into like i, I was at uh, uh nate now's once getting a bagel and i see frank jr sitting there and i said oh mr sinatra i saw you in vegas you were me he goes sit down and uh he goes you hungry I go, he goes, have a scoop of tuna. They got great tuna. And I sat I sat for an hour and talked to Frank Jr. You know, it's like that's the type of place it is where next thing you're living at Joni's house and, and Dylan's sisters and Michelle Phillips are showing up going, where's Joan, Joan? And you're like, whoa, trying to act cool.
0: And for those of you who are from this area, Musso and Frank's is a historic restaurant in Hollywood that's been around forever. And the waiters have been there for 50 yeah. years and they wear those vests. And it's just like old, old Hollywood. And I think it's truly probably the last restaurant that is old Hollywood. And believe it or not, young people from all over love to just hang out there and go. And it's the one place where you really feel comfortable, even if you're not comfortable with an older crowd or whatever. It mixes magically. There. And,
1: and I would go there. To have a cup of coffee. Like, you know, I'm not going to go to Cantor. I love Cantor's. I would go there. But,
0: and but Cantor's, I, is a, if you don't know, is a fairy fame. The other place that's a very old school. It's an old style Jewish deli yeah, on Fairfax.
1: I would go to Beverly Hilton and drink water or a cup of coffee. Like, I figured that if I'm going to be fucking broke, I'm going to go to where the richest... Coolest, Most happening people are. What's
0: odd is that what he's talking about is that these richest, coolest, most amazing people, they'll oftentimes go to these places, many of them like Cantor's. If there was a rating system of A is a rating system for the cleanest, nicest restaurant and B is the other rating, Cantor's might get a C. Z-7. Musso and Frank's is a beautiful place, but it's old. It's like you're in a time capsule. The rug looks like it's been there for a long time. And the other place we mentioned, Nate Niles, again, it's just nothing special, but it's the ambiance.
1: Yeah. And and but I'm really good at going up to people like I, I you know, I'm very cordial and I'm kind of diplomatic. And so I would see, you know, Rod Steiger, you know, or B-Ber Reynolds and just go oh, Dude, I'm like loved the Palm Brook or, you, or I I'm it was such a filmo you know I could mention you know uh to Burt Reynolds um you were so good in that um uh Ah oh, fuck it. Well, yeah, I can't remember the movie, but zero. He's done weird, you know, crazy sixties things that I would mention. I go, oh my god, when I saw that with my brother, we were fucking floored. And uh, sit down, you know what I mean? And so you're just—that's one of the things that inspired you because you know all these people were super shitty. You know, like, and the reality is, it's just, you know, like you meet Matt and Trey and you're sitting there in South Park and you're sitting there bouncing off the wall going, I want this. Like, my shitty friends have this. I think I could have this. You know what I mean? So there was so much inspiring shit there because, you know, People stupider than me are selling stuff or huge. And I, you know, I could, they're stupider than me. I'm sure I can sell something. But, and I lived in Venice because there was always somebody sh- shittier than you that I would, you know, I was broke and eating fucking, you know, French fries, but some guy you know behind my house was waking up with sand mites in his hair and i was like okay i'm still good i'm still good like if you want to move to L- la and 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 rough it with no car go to venice cuz everybody's doing worse than it's you it's true with the worst art in anywhere in the world yeah. you know fucking dolphin bad dolphin art like it's the worst
0: so you get picked up for 26, even though it's a 100000 an episode and $2.6 chances are the least amount of money you made for the 26 episodes was probably 130000 each. And the most money you probably made was... Five G's
1: an yeah, episode, I think. Yeah. But for me, it was like, dang, I would have done it for free.
0: No, but the thing is, you finally break $100,000 yeah, and like, now you have some money in your pocket, yeah. but they cancel it. Why do they cancel it when it's a huge hit?
1: Um... Well, we were an acquisition. There's different things. Ooh, I, we- CBC, they did a lot of in-house shows. All of their shows were in-house. They were giving everybody a million an episode to do stuff and getting 10,000 viewers. Ours was 100,000. We're getting half a million viewers. So we were. it was just part of that kind of Tom Green era where all the union guys thought they were going to lose their job. We don't hire any of them. And the CBC started going, why are we giving you this money when Kenny Verspenny is quadrupling your numbers for nothing? And we became like this bone marrow cancer in the union where everybody got scared that they're going to start you know farming out out all of this cheap shit to people that can really show them you know great numbers and they had the worst viewers and numbers ever and once you get a show that gets huge numbers it shows everybody else how shitty they're doing if everybody's getting shitty numbers but isn't the goal of a network to get not in canada you know i went to a school and in the 80s all of the chinese came to the school so, so the Browners, the shitty nerds, they're like the bell curve dropped. The Chinese were getting like A pluses, and everybody else in the school did so shitty compared to the Chinese guys that came in. That, you know, it just put everything in perspective about how useless we are as students and how shitty they we are. But they
0: didn't expel the Chinese students.
1: No. But everyone who did shitty realized how shitty they were.
0: But they didn't expel the Chinese students. They expelled Kenny versus Spenny. Yeah. Why?
1: Um, well, we were edgy and weird, and what happened was I think uh, our executive producer, Moranis, went to them and said, you know what, They're, you're, they have a leash on, and they can, you know, they'll go, Showcase wanted us. They said, let them go to Showcase because they can do what they so really you went want. went to another Canadian We network. We did two shows for CBC that couldn't air. They couldn't air them. So they're like, Ugh. Why couldn't they air them? Well, one was Who's a Better Parent, where we had these robot babies that cried and I drop kicked mine and threw it off bridges and, you know, beat the shit out of it. Even though it was just a doll, all of our executives were moms. Remember
0: the Chappelle show where he drop kicks the baby?
1: No, but I love Chappelle. So
0: it gets picked
1: up at the Showcase
0: Network in Canada. Yeah. Does it do another season there? Six
1: seasons. Oh, five five more seasons. So the people so from CBC, there.
0: did they ever come up to you and say, we kind of made a mistake?
1: No, there. but I've gone to them and say, like, you know, one of them, one of the presidents that comes up to me, go, hey, the Beatles. And I was like, fuck you. You know, like, uh, what happened? Why would you fire us? He's like, eh, whatever. So you do six seasons. But I was happy. You see... The you know I'm got our show it's canceled and I'm like fuck fuck I moved back from L A we have a huge show and they canceled us we are fucked and then just turned out to be a great thing got it we ping ponged from all of these places we got canceled a million times and just Family Guy too that happened not that we're I would compare myself but shit happens
0: why not in Canada it is comparable yeah. So you do six seasons. How many episodes? 91.
1: Well, and, and a and a, a movie of the week.
0: But didn't you do some best dubs or things
1: that were extra episodes or no? No, I, we did ones that we did like Who's the Biggest Retard, which they refused to air. Uh-huh. They said, you're not allowed to make fun of mentally handicapped people. I said, I've been doing that for four fucking years. You never complained before. But uh, then we did like, we're doing stuff like, you know, I was really proud of the show because people think we're just some shitty jackass, uh, a series of unrelated vignettes. So we beat each other up. This was a, a, a narrative, you know documentary sitcom and, and it was very highly moralistic and I think that's what people really love about it we did who do gay guys like more and we both tried to fuck the gay guy and embarrassing our some of our shitty homophobic audiences like you know we do who could drink more beer Spenny drinks 90 beers and almost dies and people are like whoa being an alcoholic is bad you know We and all, everything I, we did I designed so it's like who can eat more meat people are trying to stop eating meat who can gain more weight people are trying to lose weight you know and and, you know, we do stuff where I had uh, tranny suck spenny off on nationally on television. And in the end, you know, it's just like, well, fuck you. It was a good blowjob. And, and that, like, is so moralistic and so great. And I had a Down syndrome kid in the show. We did. Who do old Jewish ladies like better? I teach this kid to tell him that Spenny molested him, but I never called him a retard. We actually became really good friends and hung out and you know had fun. So I we never exploited anybody but ourselves. And 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 when you really look at Kenny versus Spenny, you know we did one episode where who do kids like more, and this was on the CBC when we started, and I had all these nutcracker sweet presents in my room hidden in the closet, like the most beautiful boxes with ribbons and bows. They looked like the, the most majestic gifts. And I went to the kids, and I brought them in the closet, and said, if you pick me, you get the presents. So at the end of the show, whether they like spending more, or me more, or whatever, they all pick me and I take them, up. I they go, yay, I win, I win. I take them all upstairs to my room and I hand out all of the presents and they open them up and they're all empty. It's like, fuck you. Here's a good lesson. And the parents came up to me going, oh, my God, you taught my kid, like, the best lesson. Don't, like, don't take a fucking bribe, you know? And, And so I thought that was a really good thing. I think we stopped kids from being, like, molested by pedophiles. They knew that shitty adults are assholes. And that, that Kenny versus Benny actually stopped kids from getting into fucking people's cars because they're like, whoa, you know, they could relate to how shitty we were. And, it, and I'm really proud of that.
0: That's fantastic. So Comedy Central does an acquisition. Why doesn't Comedy Central do new original episodes?
1: Well, they, they came on board, they did new, they, did, we, we, they partnered with Showcase and did some new episodes. Yeah, but So um, they were on for, I think, season four or five, season four, or season five.
0: But they started airing the original ones first.
1: They picked up some old ones, which I didn't really like. I was like, I, I had a whole like list of the best episodes, and and uh, some of the execs were, I like this one, I like that one. That's how the business comes in where you're not going to go, you know, It's so like my mind is blown. But they came on board when Spenny was so impossible to work with and so shitty, so horrible and such an asshole that it was, you know, we had done so much with them. By the time they came on board, I was kind of like we were both kind of done with it. So it was hard to, not that I wouldn't have done it and I tried to do it, but it was. uh, And
0: how much money did they give you an episode for those shows, the new ones? We
1: were were up. To about I think 350.
0: 350 and it was a split with showcase for yeah. the money.
1: Got it. Okay. Which was all, you know, now it's like I'm meeting guys downstairs I'm like, "Oh, I'm doing a reality mobisode and it's it's under 500." And I'm just like, "Oh, fuck you. Your fucking mobisode sucks and you're so shitty. How is someone giving you $500,000 for a shitty 4-minute YouTube video?" Like, you know, we go to places trying to get a feature. Nobody nobody gives us anything. No, nobody even realizes how great we are or how famous we are. It's like, there's a total disconnect between the industry and how, You know, I've got a million fucking fans on Facebook and shit. It's like nobody gets it. I don't know. It's just so it's so disheartening. Not that I care. I'm really lucky and I'm super happy about it. And I I'm couldn't I have the best life ever and I couldn't be happier. But still, like you think whoever has the most Facebook fans is a person that should get the show. But this is why it is, is because
0: you've changed you stop being the person that you were, and you're a different person. You'd have everything you want if you didn't feel so comfortable. You're not working as hard as you worked before. When you were fucking in that garage, you, don't have to, yeah. you were thinking about, how do I got to oh, get going? Anything, yeah. The desperation, the thing. Now you have all the money you need. Chances are... I could be so bold that you never have to work again as long as you live and your probably child doesn't have to work.
1: Well, and so
0: have to work <laughs> that rich, but uh, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm, but the point I'm trying to make is yeah. that you're not getting up in the morning every morning, Thinking about the plan of how I'm going to pitch this next show, and when they—if somebody passes on that—when I'm coming out to L.A. the next month and pitching the next show, and if they pass on that,
1: I'm coming out again and doing this one. Well, yeah, yes and no. The reality after Kenny vs. Spenny, a, a, a couple of years later. I'm talking about now. Yeah. Okay, I'll tell you about now. Now, first of all, I have some cool friends, and and I. The the only thing I have is cool. It sounds lame to say, but I'm trying to maintain my cool because that's the only fucking commodity that I have that makes me useful in the entertainment business. And, you know, I my entire life, I've just always tried to go up the ladder. That's all I've tried to do is not do something shittier than what I did before. So it's. a good idea comes around once every three to five years. It's like a, it's like a soulmate or a chick or whatever. Like you only meet a good one every five or 10 fucking years. And that's like it. And a good idea, I don't want to do a fucking shitty idea. And when, you know, like recently I've been inspired to do some, something decent and, and that's like oh my god I that's it I love it I want to fucking do it and so so wh- you know it takes a really long time I just don't want to do anything shitty just to make fucking money because you'll you'll always you know, it's funny. Trey said to me once that there's two types of people, the people who do shit to make money and the people that do shit t- to make art. And the people that do shit to make art will always make way more money than the fucking idiots who are doing shit just to make cash. And I figure if I just hang back and, you know, I feel like I'm a shitty Sid Barrett, you know, you just kind of like make. So I've made three good albums or to me. And, and you know, you got to make a great fucking album. And I think it's a wave and you ride the wave and and you know you're just always trying to get a bigger wave and if you can surf that bigger wave you just go up the ladder and I'm waiting till I have the opportunity to do something that's so great that you know it's better than anything I've made before and and that's all I want to do is just make something better and it's hard to find those ideas or to to be motivated to do something fucking great but I know you have the ideas
0: I know you have the money in this day and age to make a pilot presentation. Literally, you probably could be homeless and make a pilot presentation. So... I don't understand why you don't peruse for well, your I group don't... of ideas. Just listen yeah. to me for one second, because this is important yeah. for you. I think okay, for you. Okay, please. Because uh, you, can you have all these great ideas. I'm sure you have hundreds yeah. of them. You say good ideas are hard to come by. I know you know you can blow the dust off your treatments. Sure. And you have some great ideas. You have money but you're not shooting these ideas now you're not making them you're not casting them and doing them and then going out with them and then if that doesn't work shooting another one and keeping a slate going and then taking a percentage of the money that's in your bank account and betting on yourself again you're waiting for somebody else to write you a check which is the thing that you violently oppose to your whole life
1: yeah so why aren't you doing this because i'm feel like I'm in a situation where, you know, the last show I did was $500,000 an episode and to, to, I I feel like I'm a person that has walked into rooms and sold shows. I just don't have some, anyone in LA that's savvy enough or cool enough that I trust and love enough that will put me into rooms with people that can green light where I know this is the most important thing about the biz. And you have to believe what you're doing is great but you already do i know but who's but i can't get in front like i i can't go in front of get into a room with i just need a really wicked fucking agent who loves but, me I mean, and gets but, me and just says show up but to the this thing building. is like
0: i don't understand like i could make 10 phone calls and you'll be in the room well, so that,
1: I, well then i'm uh, yeah well this i'm telling you empires am i the built. only guy in the world that's yeah. bl- yes you are because the market's so oversaturated with everything people are you know you know like there's mega stars You know how hard it is to sell a show in LA. Like, it's it's tough. I I just you have to find a home and you have to find a family. And every time you finish a show or it gets canceled, you lose your family. You lose your your executives. You lose your your your. You know, consultants and your writers and your camera guys and they all fucking wander off like a, somebody opened a fucking can of bees and everybody flies off anywhere. When you got cash and when shit's going on and everything's together, everybody fucking loves you. You're buying everybody houses, but the second you can't sell a show, everyone fucks off on you because because uh, you're 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 lazy and you're a fucking loser. But listen, if I had somebody that that you know, really loved me and shared my voice and was cool and, and totally inspired me and it helped me, you know, create and develop something incredible, I would fucking suck, like literally suck their dick because I'm, uh, I'm just that six-year-old kid that just wants people to see my shit.
0: Would you at least paint your nails? Of course. Okay.
1: <laughs> no, I'm saying that's what I love. It's just... I've been so lucky to be back in that situation to do something so fucking great and that's why Chappelle's so great and and Family Guy's so great and South Park is so great and Tom was so great because they were in a place that you know it's a garden and you're a seed and you need the fucking soil and you need the water and the light and it's very hard to be in a situation like oh what am I going to go do something for Disney XD some shitty fucking kids like singing dance show that I'll f- I'll fucking kill myself you know I, I, I just the opportunity the correct opportunity hasn't opened up to me and which is which sucks because I really do feel like if if somebody gave me a really good shot and had an idea that was mutually fruitful that fit their mandate and I loved it I I would fucking kill it I swear to God like I would kill it
0: so you take the last pilot you did trial for the will
1: yeah so
0: that was 500,000 an episode yeah about 475 All right, 475 be honest with me in the audience the first episode you have the plan you know what it all is you see it and it's right there and I tell you Kenny, I want you to make it with your resources, everything you have, with your own money, and I want it to look as good as the episode looked that they spent yeah. 4.75 on. Yeah. Be honest with our audience. If I gave you that task, how much would it cost to finish that pilot and deliver it uh, with your nothing, res- with your like, resources? How nothing. much? Eleven G's. That's right. Eleven thousand yeah. dollars.
1: Camera. Good. Good. Camera.
0: Uh, editor. Twenty-five hundred a week. Kenny. Put a slate together. Put six things together. Commit a hundred thousand dollars of your own money. And make six pilots a year, and kick fucking ass, and stop with the craziness of waiting for somebody to write a check for four hundred and seventy-five thousand oh, dollars. I
1: wanted eight hundred thousand. No, I've been. Wrong. I I have some projects out there, but I yeah. I
0: know, but I'm just saying, you are a leader. You're a guy who makes things happen. You can make anything happen. The problem is there's no problem
1: the problem is you here's the problem is that you're no matter what you do you keep i keep getting canceled who cares it's it's
0: uh, is that why you're not doing it you're afraid of getting canceled
1: well no i'm i'm afraid that the the people who i'm going to give it to aren't going to get it like yes I could do a sizzle reel this or that but and I don't know.
0: fear and success they but, go but, together well but I I'm
1: not saying it's, it's fear go I'm just well? saying
0: that you did say fear
1: historically all I've done I've walked in a room with presidents and sold shows like I, I don't need to you you're know, the I,
0: most successful television producer in Canadian history
1: probably it's, it's a they're genre pieces nobody nobody uh, the, you know so the million you know people on YouTube Have don't you give a shit the comedies they're doing in yes, Canada but the how million- am I supposed to watch Walk into a room and sell a comedy to somebody who's done, you know, the worst fucking show. So don't in the go history to Canada. Well, that's what I did. I avoided Canada.
0: But you're still not answering the
1: question. Why aren't you making these pilots for 11,000, eleven thousand fifteen? I may be, tra- I may be traumatized. By all of the work that I've done. And I'll tell you, my last show, you know, you don't know what's going on. Like, like I'm doing a show. I'm trying to get my mom laid. If nothing happens, I'm fucked. Like, it's so much. Why are you fucked? Because a lot of my stuff is documentary. So something has to happen in the documentary for shit to get funny. And it's the most dangerous thing you can do is, is go out there and pray to God something happens. And luckily, for some fucking, I got a horseshoe up my ass. Luckily, for some reason, and my stuff historically weird stuff is happening, all, and I managed to turn out some good stuff. So. Uh, it, it It's just so dangerous. I've been so lucky. It's a Russian roulette for me. You know, you keep spinning it, you keep spinning it, and that bullet doesn't go off, and I'm just scared that I'm going to do something that's going to turn out so shitty that I'm going to fucking destroy my my... But this is the thing,
0: Kenny. If you spend your own money and produce your own stuff and it comes out shitty... Then you bury it, and you start with the next thing.
1: I I kind of moved into sitcom or that type of narrative scripted. It's 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 not 11 G's like it's 11 G's for me to run out and go do a vice show. All right, a vice Let's comedy. Let's take
0: one of your pilots yeah. that you've written that's scripted. Yeah. How much will it cost to make it here?
1: Uh oh, it's any studio, with your money. Any studio stuff. <laughs> yeah, probably might be able to bang it off for a couple hundred G's. Can in a. studio scripted actors oh my god yeah. for sure
0: your friends casting it your friends who are cameramen finding uh, a studio probably
1: 80 90 100 like to do a real
0: studio uh, narrative with all the favors you can pull it's going to cost
1: $80,000 well I think I, I, I think I could bamboozle somebody like you say, yes, to go yes. make a sizzle reel for free. I'm going to say you could do it for between twenty five and yeah, 50000 Probably, yeah.
0: So make the scripted show. You're talented. You're amazing. That's a
1: so weird idea. It's a good point. I don't know why I'm just so kind of all right this is what you it. have
0: to do you have to look me in the eyes and you have to shake my hand <laughs> no, and you have, not, I've, I've, you have to promise me you have to promise me by gonna do by thanksgiving there's going to be a full pilot that's going to be done and finished fine and okay. you produce it
1: on my father's grave you promise i swear to god i will do that okay all i'm right. totally lying and what well, my that whole father's grave stuff means nothing okay you're lying to me why don't you
0: can you are why you don't lying you... to me of course well, you got to shake my hand and not lie. Well, I want to know.
1: I, my generation shaking hands, swearing on Bibles—that means nothing. All right. Well, see, that's well, that's well, why I'm that's why I'm unique because I can swear on my father's grave, shake your hand, and totally be lying. What
0: will it take for you not to lie and promise me you'll make this thing by Thanksgiving?
1: Well, I think that, I think that I just need to find somebody who who has the, who I believe will pick it up if. They saw it Why? Well, because that's what you have to do You have to, you know, you need a broadcaster to show your shit I know, but So if, I do all this stuff I know, but And it's so hard but and you and,
0: pitch it and you'll see if it gets picked up And if it doesn't, it
1: doesn't Well, so why Yeah, I know, but I can so walk, what, into, I can lost, walk into, So
0: what, you've lost $50,000 I know, big but deal. I can
1: walk into a room And what well, what I've done historically is just walk into a room and do that Without, it, without diff- any sizzle reel or anything It's a
0: different time, Ken
1: Yeah, it might be You might be right about that
0: how do I get you to promise without lying that you're gonna do it?
1: I'll help you. Okay, well that's different. You wanna help me do that? I'll help you. Okay. You if promise? you help me, I will do it. You promise. Yeah, I promise. You're not I'll lying. I'll, no, I just need someone on board that that I trust that gets it that can, you know, help me figure it out. The only not not in a, the uh, content the, way. The but, only
0: thing I can help you figure yeah. out is get it. In front of the decision makers, but yeah, you exactly. have to make the extraordinary piece of work, which I know you'll do. I know you'll hire great actors. I happen to think you'll probably direct it as well. Yeah, of course. And you'll have your vision, and nobody will change anything. It'll be everything that you want it to be.
1: You are right about having to produce content now. Like you have to do, you have to come in with a sizzle or something like that 100%.
0: All right. Let's talk about how. Your partner in crime, when you're working with somebody and you're beholden to somebody, you can't do the show without that person. Yeah. Talk about when that person goes off the rails and you're the guy who has to try to keep it all together. How do you handle that?
1: Well, most shows historically when there's a partner, go downhill when the your partner's fighting and you don't get along with them. Organically, Kenny versus Spenny got better. The more I hated Spenny, the meaner I was to him, and the better the show got. It was just this unique situation where no matter how much we hated each other and the worse it got, the show got better. Like I think it's probably the first time in history something like that happened. But Spenny is so shitty and after doing that for so many years, you know, I I, I, I was just doing like most of the work constantly. And he had this thing where, you know, that's not how I choose to direct. He thought that me spending time in the edit suites, mixing, doing everything, like leave that to other people. That's other people's job. That was his asshole way of saying that I can't get paid more for sitting there for six months while he goes back to L.A. to go try and sell another show. So when we did Kenny versus Spenny, In post-production on the very first season, I sat and I edited and mixed and I made our show alone and he fucked off to LA and he tried to sell another show. Didn't even get what we were doing here. Like, you know, and he, if he sat in the room or when he sat in the room, he's actually made the show better. Like it's your job to come in, do notes, finish our fucking shit, make it as great as possible. But he he just you know he's it was self destructive, so it, it just wore so much and and by the end we did an episode, uh, who could stay in Cuba the or who could stay on an island the longest, and uh, he just didn't care you know he just you know he just got tired. So if I were sitting
0: down with Spencer yeah. and I said to him break it down for me, a hundred percent of the work on the show through the 91 episodes. If you add it all up, what percentage would you be and what percentage would Ken be? What would he say?
1: If he was if he was here alone with you, he'd say, "Oh, 50-50." If he was sitting here with me, he'd say, "Oh, well, Kenny did most of the work." Yeah, I did most of the work. I wrote every episode, every competition. There were two competitions he gave me,
0: and it wasn't a writers guild show, so you couldn't get the writing money for that. No.
1: No. It was a reality show. To me, it was, you know, my stuff was all rigged and, you know, kind of. Pre-written because I'm I have to go get gay guys to rape them. I have to go get a kappa bear. I got to go hire a tranny. So you know my stuff was very difficult for me, where where I had to kind of prepare what I was doing and and create scenarios where I was funny. Like I had to you know we're doing fart episode. Okay, uh, I got to stick a tube up my ass and learn to fart. And whereas Spenny was Mutual of Omaha, he was just a, a documentary. Like you would just film him and put the cameras on him, and that was his He Didn't nah, hardly ever prepared for anything. I used to. Come I mean, his crew would come to me going, we got nothing for Spenny to do. And I'd say, oh, well, you know, we're trying to be fat. Go get, go interview a fat guy and see what it's like to be fat. And he go, okay. And then we're going off and interview a fat guy. I It wasn't, it, it didn't affect the him competing, but I was just trying to think of things. So get some fucking content for the show because we got to edit the fucking thing. I never helped him win or anything. I was just trying to, you know, get the fuck out there and shoot some shit.
0: Tell me the moment that happened in... The relationship between you two, where you went home that night,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you sat in the fetal position, and you said, We're done. "I'm never going to work with
1: this guy again as long as I live." He called me once. First of all, he he has this shitty cousin who who got involved in like it's like I, I've been working with you for. T- 30 years, I mean, I'm not talking to your shitty fucking cousin who's like, wants to be a part of the show and come in and do all your fucking negotiating for you. The guy's not even an agent, a manager, is no lawyer, like it's nothing to do with the biz. So he brought that guy and I was like, fuck you, I wouldn't even talk to them on the phone together. And one day he called me and I never told the story. One day he called me, he said, I don't like you, I'm not your friend anymore. And I was like, you know, we were fighting and all of this stuff. And I, I went, what? He goes, I don't like you. I, you're not my friend," I said. Uh, "You're not my friend. Fuck you!" And I cancel. I basically canceled Kenny versus Penny. Right there, right there, and then I went to the broadcaster. I said, "You know what?" this was after the Cuba episode and he wasn't pulling his weight and he didn't give a shit anymore. And I didn't want it. They ordered They ordered another season of Kenny versus Benny season seven. And I knew Spenny. Benny just doesn't have the fucking, he, he, he just, he, he. he's not, he doesn't care. He doesn't care enough to go do a great another season. So I said, fuck this. I said, I want to do a show where it's me versus the world, where I go, you know, it's me trying to, you know, create love and, and stop war. And, and, you know, it's Kenny versus the world and and Spenny went off and did like this total piece of shit, you know, curb. Everyone's doing a curb. He went off and did a curb and he let everybody else direct and do all of their work and it turned out to be the worst car crash in Canadian history. In fact, that show got the, the least viewed numbers out of any show in the history of Canada. It was terrible. So I, I kind of instigated that and I told the broadcaster too, I said, they said well we're gonna do the show with spenny i said just don't just don't have him act don't let him act and they let him act and the show was terrible and he did it with with um david uh what's his name steinberg and i was like i loved steinberg but now it's like uh, dude how can you fucking do something that shitty he did it for the money i'm sure but you know what I, I and 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 he was humbled by it, and now he's great. He's back to where he was. We're friends, and and he's amazing, and we're killing on the live tour because you know I I, I may, he really got fucking reamed on that. What do you do on the live tour? Uh, we uh, my, my motivation. I go on the live tour and I just get people to hate him that's it but I, what do you do in the theater i go up there and i just call him a pug rapist pedophile and no, but you sh- have we, to do a 90 minute show what do off, you, do? you have to they have to rip the mic out of my hand we just uh, it's a it's a, a barrage of of just deplorable shit that i say against benny and we just we go at each other it's we, we are a, a well-honed comedy duo we do show some clips that nobody's ever seen and and get into stories and talk about our shit, and you do that here in Canada or all across the world. We're, we're only doing. We're wearing out Canada, and then we're going to do, uh, then we're going to do, Europe, Australia, South Africa, Germany. Why not the United States? We're going to end in the states because all our our audiences are in Australia, South Africa, and Germany. That's uh, where our biggest. is. So, in other words, are. if you
0: put up a date, let's say at the Wilbur Theater in Boston that holds a thousand people, wouldn't sell.
1: I think I don't know. I'm not sure because we hadn't well, really. We never
0: p- tried to do one date in the United States. Never, not even
1: one. I think we could fill three, four hundred seats anywhere and go on a sixty-city tour. You could city do a comedy tour. club tour, right? Oh, one hundred percent. I think, yeah. But I see. I, I'm. I want to go where you know. You know, two thirds of my Facebook fans are from Germany and South Africa. So why not start there? You know what I mean? Like there's analytics on my Facebook and YouTube pages of exactly where everybody is and where everybody's watching. So I'd like to milk that milk first. And who first. books you in those gigs? We're trying to find people. But it's like, you know, you don't even have a it's hard to meeting. convince, you know, Helmut von Steingein that you're a big star in Germany and he's never even heard of you. You know what I mean? Interesting. It's weird. It, it, it's a whole weird thing, but uh, the touring thing's been really good. And, and you know, the reality is it's like you work your ass off for 20 fucking years and you you make it and you make some fucking cash and I, you got a nice house and starting a family and all of this shit and, and stuff comes into perspective for you. I would love to go and do a new show, but it has to be under the right conditions and it has to be has to be done correctly and I'm just so kind of turned off of the how hard it is to find that scenario and I don't want to just go out there and try and sell something but if I if I was in a position where I could find something I would be motivated to do what you're talking about
0: if I had any advice for you or yeah. anybody out there who's an artist yeah if you could do it erase your memory except for the great memories of what worked erase all the memories of the bad things yeah. that are holding you back and if you can do that you're gonna just completely yeah, resurrect it's funny. It's everything i'm just
1: so scared to do something shitty that's not scared yeah like <laughs> traumatized
0: scared traumatized Tra- scared
1: shitless yeah to, to be in a scenario where i'm i end up doing something shit that i hate I'll how can you do something
0: me. shitty that you create
1: well, because you end up with the, you end up with the wrong people. A shitty actor could fucking kill you. You're some casting some PA, the actor. Some PA can lose your fucking tapes. Like I've, it's so insane. It's such a collaborative field and so many people are That's
0: like saying forty nine percent of the marriages go down in flames
1: and end. I didn't get married. I'm I'm had a baby with my girlfriend because of fucking divorces. Are you still married? No. Nah, ask yourself that question. How did, how did it work for you? I asked the question. Why aren't you? All the look, days. you're a fucking legend. Why? What the? Why are you doing a shitty blog at JFL? What are you telling me to go do shit for? Where's your fucking show? Why aren't you Chappelle's agent? You found everybody. These are all excellent questions. Yeah. She's just put a mirror in front of you, and you can talk to yourself <laughs> like that. I'm rich. I had three shows. I'm super famous. It's believe me. It's I. I'm very savvy. I'm savvy. I know. I. I just need. I, I just got to find the right time and the right place. You know how this shit is very hard. But you know what? When you look in the mirror,
0: you're looking at a guy who's aligned the planets and figured it out. Most people haven't figured it out. Like when I'm working with an artist, you know, I've done like probably a hundred development deals. Yeah. I know I can do it. Yeah. I'm not worried about. It. I'm not
1: scared that I can't do it. But why aren't you doing it then? Why aren't I doing what? Why aren't Why aren't you running some hot show on ABC? Or why Why aren't you out there pitching? Well, the last shit two light. shows
0: I've had were canceled after two seasons. So I'm like you. Yeah,
1: it's uh, like all this work, and and the numbers are great, and it'll, but I'll
0: I, still keep going and, yeah. and getting them on or trying to get them on. I'm pitching shows every month.
1: Yeah, I th- I I think I just kind of
0: needed a break i want you to know i'm not going against you i want you to win yeah i sit across him and i see some guy who's a very talented guy who has a great heart and a funny soul the tired eyes yeah
1: bedroom eyes they're called
0: but anyway the point is is that you just have a very youthful way about you It's stunning to the audience and to me that somebody who's experienced the kind of success that you've had is thinking, God, I'm scared, and I'm going to get the shit kicked out of me again.
1: It's not being scared. It's just – it's like I left L.A. in 2009. I moved back to Toronto. It's like you – like. you know how much work it is to go like I have to if I want to go sell a show I have to go move back to LA with my family and you know go find a wicked fucking agent and just like I I go sometimes I go when I pitch in LA there are two shitty guys sitting next to me who are fucking vultures that are madmen it's like holy shit I remember being that guy it's like I'm 48 like it's it's like you have to be a fucking madman to go Go out there and and do it and sell it and go buy fucking David Spade drinks at the Soho House and you know be in the right elevator, and run to Musso and Frank's and sit around eating herring, so that you know Judd Apatow will walk and go, hey, you know, can you spend? You know, like like it, it's a constant attacking grind to go and live that lifestyle. I haven't found somebody that that says Kenny. Come out here. See, what I used to think was that you don't live to, need to live in L.A. anymore. It's it actually better for you that, oh, you know, this guy lives in Toronto. They're probably so sick of getting pitched by the same people that it's probably the first time in history where you're, you're bigger and you're cooler that you don't live in L.A. But, you know, it's a collaborative effort. And if I had a, a cool agent, which I have in the past, had incredible agents, but they're gone now. It's like that said, you know, come here, meet this person. And uh, that's you know that's all I need is somebody to just go hey look um, put a reel together and or do this or I love that idea do it and I'll and I, I think this guy will go for it I would gladly do it you know what I mean it's just it's L A and you have to be there and you have to fucking do it and that is a whole different thing than than me living in Toronto and eating getting free desserts because I'm Kenny because I'm famous so so I bet the garage is still open <laughs> I'm sure. Well, listen, there's a house they offered me for 160 G's when I was in debt on Abikini. You know, it's like if the house is worth 1.5 million now, if I had three G's to put down on a mortgage, I'd, you know, I would, I'd still be there.
0: God. All right. I want to do like a six degrees of separation. If you don't mind, I'm going to mention some names or topics. Yeah. I'd love you to tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Anal sex. Oh, wait, you haven't started yet. That was my first one. I was going to say, okay.
1: Phil Hartman. Um, it's crazy you say that. Paul Hartman, Phil Hartman's brother, just gave me a hand-painted self-portrait that Phil did when he was 19 years old. I have a picture of it. I'll give it to you. It is fucking unbelievable. He's, it's a self-portrait that he did in pencil. It's really big and it's him holding a gun. He saw him, just him seeing himself as a kind of secret agent. And, uh, and, uh, so I'm friends of the Hartmans. And and I, I'm a total star fucker. I love Hollywood. That's why I went into this because I love Chaplin. And I love you know Greta Garbo and Liz Taylor and all those shit like all that shitty shit like you know Lawrence Olivier and Capra and I like you know and I, I'm a I'm a fucking film guy. So when I see guys like that that are so fucking great and so cool. And make shit look so easy. They're the things that inspired me to do what I do. And it all, to me, it goes back to SCTV and SNL and Python and all that stuff. But to me, he was a god. Um, like his brother said, it was a shit fucking sandwich which happened. And uh, disaster. Just horrible. But you know what can you do? The the reality is he 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 made incredible stuff and he was incredibly funny, and he, you know even though he's dead he left a fucking, you know, a legacy which is just incredible. Joni Mitchell, Auntie Joan, Joan, I feel so bad. She uh, had an aneurysm and and she's not doing well. Maybe she's better now, but but uh, two weeks before she went into her coma and and and. Uh, went to the hospital. I was invited over to their ha- to her house for dinner, and I told my girlfriend, wife, Audrey, I said, "Can I go to Joni Mitchell's house and just just for the night, you will know, fly to Joni's and go have dinner?" And she's like, Ugh, "Really?" And I said, "Please." And she's like, Ugh. "And I didn't go." So. I feel so fucking bad and I love her so much. Like she really, you know, talking about being saved and, and being inspired, you know, walking around that place, pictures of her and George Harrison and like, it's, it's a, it's a fucking museum. It's incredible. But, uh, love her to pieces. So cool. So nice. Like the nicest fucking lady Ever. And same with Mantrea, the nicest fucking people. I hate these douches who end up making it and become fucking assholes. You know, like Chelsea, Chelsea Handler. I was lived, you know, I saw her every day for five fucking years. I go see her at Just for Laughs. She's a total fucking bitch. It's like, fuck you, Chelsea. Like, who else spent their last $5 going to see you with a bitter fucking redhead? Like, fuck off. You know what I mean? Like turning on your fucking friends that that helped you, you know, and, and you know, helped, you know can you come to my show and laugh? Yeah, yeah. Ooh, okay, fine, but it's like I don't know, it's just there's, there's assholes and there's nice people and I just hate the fucking assholes I don't have time for it anymore you know, I have to sit and watch Oprah's Life Class every fucking day because I got a baby now, And but that shit's like you know what, Th- there's a lot of fucking good in it, you know, be a good person don't be a fucking dick and uh, you know it's light versus dark that's, uh, that's I'm just trying to live in the now and, and be a good person and be happy. And look, shit comes back to you. Look, now I'm sitting with you, which is an honor and I'm invited by, I get a free $1,600 pass for JFL because they like me. It's like, that's the shit that happens. Spenny's doing triple X shitty bingo for $5 in Windsor because he's a fucking dick. That's, that's what happens to you. You know, it's karma. Not that I believe in any of that shit, but there is some truth to, you know, the right path. I believe in karma. Speaking of karma, your dad. Oh, greatest, sweetest guy, but worst, worst businessman ever. He, he'd he'd do it like a business deal and go, okay, Jack, we owe you 60 grand sign here. And he said, a handshake's good enough for me. And then they wouldn't pay him the 60 grand, but uh, seeing him, this is why I'm me seeing my father get douched by everybody because he was the nicest guy in the world turned me to a diabolical fucking bastard that ended up making me a star on Kenny versus Spenny. So I, I'm the antithesis of what my father's personality was. He, I, I didn't want to live my life and get douched by fucking assholes. So I just, you know, got street smart and figured it out, you know, so I, I do what my dad didn't do. Kanye West and Drake. I am um, love rap I saw Grandmaster Flash in 1982 I've always been into uh, Black culture We have the same penis um, I like those guys I own a bar A club and a restaurant Kanye and Drake ended up playing the club Which is nice But my shitty fucking partners didn't even tell me they were playing. Like, somebody called. Somebody texted me. Oh, uh, Kanye's playing your club. Like, fuck off. Like, I wasn't even there. I've been there. A couple of the Squillaxes played there like two, three times. Shit's a zoo. But that's the other thing. I made a conscious decision. Am I going to go to my club? Ram 18-year-old Kenny versus Benny fans do bumps and just be a fucking scummy sleaze ball, Or am I going to be with a, the most incredible girl who loves me, makes me brush my teeth and totally takes care of me? Am I going to be, you know, gross or I'm going to live for an extra 20 years and I made a conscious decision? You know, what? I'm going to be with someone that loves me. Uh, Try to raise a family and be a good person. That's it. So everybody sees me as a scumbag from Kenny versus Spenny, but the reality is I'm the good guy. In Kenny versus Spenny, I'm happy. I love myself. I'm. I'm. You know. I. I love life. And I don't give a shit about the stupid bureaucracy and red tape. Spenny's the Spenny's the asshole. He really is the asshole. He's violent. He, anytime anybody hits anybody, it's it's him hitting me. He's angry. He's, he's he hates himself. He's he's you know he's a introvert. I'm an extrovert. That it, to me, Kenny versus Spenny is good versus bad, and encompasses all of those, you know, all of those ideas. Let's
0: pretend that nobody knows how you guys are personally yeah let's pretend that nobody knows you're the ambassador who's always shaking hands and smiling yeah and let's pretend that nobody knows that spenny puts his head down let's pretend that i tell both of you to go to the paris hotel and casino and i want you to start at one end of the casino one of you start at one end one of you start at the other and i want you both to be like cordial and nice and just walk straight at a certain pace who's going to get to the other side fastest meaning who's not going to be stopped the most and who's going to be stopped the most
1: well spenny's gonna you want to the 20 g's that will smith gave us spenny spent 18 grand in vegas the second he got it lost it at a casino eugene levy told me you get to la don't buy a car don't buy anything. Shop at dollar stores, save every fucking penny you can. And to me, John Lennon, Eugene Levy is like, oh my God, you're a God. And I listened to him and I saved every fucking penny I had and Spenny lost every cent. I
0: guess what I'm alluding to is which one of you would you say unbiasedly For the people who don't know you personally, either one, which one of you is the most popular character? I'm way more popular than Spenny.
1: Uh, He works out first on stage and and, I do a thing. I shouldn't say it because it'll blow my load. But I have the announcer say, uh, there's a problem. Kenny couldn't make it tonight. He's stuck in the uh, Jersey airport and everyone just goes, boo. Spenny walks out and then I walk out and they all cheer. You know what I mean? Just to douche the audience a little bit before I come out. Got it. Yeah. No, listen, I have 300,000 Twitter fans. He has got like 13,000. I, I built our empire from day one. I was on ICQ and IMDB and, and I built our audience. I've been doing that. He never did any of that stuff. LSD. We used to do a lot of acid. We First time I ever did acid, I was 14 years old, maybe even 13. And my, my fat uncle died. My morbidly obese uncle died. And I did acid for his funeral it was a fucking trip and we did a lot of acid and people think I'm an asshole for giving Spenny acid but only mega fans know this that Spenny slipped me acid when I was in grade nine and me and all my friends acid so it took me 20 years to get the guy back I did it on national television but I'm not a fucking scumbag it's like fuck you it's it's revenge and uh in the end he was like oh my god that was a great show so and I really gave him acid. I'm, I hate that people think your show's fake. You can't do drugs on TV. It's like, I don't know, you ever seen Intervention where guys are like, ramming heroin into their cocks? Yeah, you can do fucking drugs. Fuck off. Like, Marlon Brando couldn't act like that. Like, he was on acid. What's interesting
0: is, in these shows, you glorified acid.
1: No, no. He ends up sh- dancing around and shitting his pants. Nobody watches that show is going to want to do SIDS. But wow. you didn't know he was going to do that. Well, most people do that on when they're whacked on fucking microdots. Yeah, most people drop a load. <laughs> acid is the worst. It is the craziest fucking drug. I think people should do it.
0: What's the worst thing that ever happened to you or one of your friends when you were on acid? Once
1: I was on acid. It's one of the last time. Oh, first of all, I'm on acid with my friends. My friends jump. My friend jumps off of a bridge. Total after school special. Jumps off of a bridge, spends six months in the hospital, loses half of his face, 13 teeth, like ended up dying a few years ago from the injuries that he had when we were 14 years old. So I I went out with my friends one night, did acid, my friend jumped off a massive bridge and like almost killed him. His dad made funeral arrangements that night. It was a fucking nightmare. My worst trip was once I was on acid i was really high and we're under we're at the back staircase of an apartment building because you can't really go anywhere on acid for kids and i I was getting so fucking high that i lied down next to a fence right against the fence and all of a sudden this paper bag bag blew against the fence and i screamed like ah and it broke my fucking brain it was the one of the worst experiences, being surprised on acid, and that's one of, one of the reasons why I scared spending in the show, yeah. because to me that was the worst trip that I ever had. Just a paper bag blowing against a fence and scaring the living, fucking shit out of me. Wow. True story. South Park, Matt and Trey. Uh, geniuses. I, you know, I sat there. I didn't do anything. I got maybe one Jew joke in. They you're fired, talking they about you talking
0: about when you were hired as a yeah. writer on the show. Yeah. How many seasons in were you hired as a writer? Season nine, nine. Yeah, and you just sat there and did nothing. Nobody does
1: anything. Those guys sit there. They write everything themselves. So why do they hire people? They like sitting with their friends and they there's they're they are the nicest, sweetest fucking guys in the world. Like Do they I, tell
0: you that before you go in, listen, we're gonna hire you gonna make some money. No, you just go sit I here didn't and watch it. I
1: was a like I said, I was a bumblebee in a jar and I'm sitting there trying to get in all these jokes and I, what I didn't understand is they just want to get the show done. As great as they as as great as possible. They need to get the show done. And I was like, okay, season nine's when Kenny Hotz comes in and everybody's gonna know, oh, the show. But no, they they want to put the show in the can. They did five million episodes. So it's get her done, get her done, get her done. Not quick, like just to make the best show they possibly can. Your proudest moment in show business? Uh, wow. There's been a, there's really been a lot. I think when I did Triumph for the Will. And I did the first episode where I tried to get my mom laid and I realized, wow, this is an evolution of like I was so scared that I would lose my audience or I couldn't do anything that it, that it, my fans would like because I love my fans. I really do stuff to, to you know, m- m- make them laugh. But when the ending of the first episode like clicked and I went, oh, my God, this is way better than Kenny versus Penny ever could be. And it, to me, the yeah. show I, the last show I did, Triumph in the Will is my, my greatest moment in history. And to, 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 you know, I'm doing who can stand up the longest and who can live with a shit in their pants. And now I'm doing, can I find my mother love? it was it's like the Beatles it's like it's all about love like to me I know it sounds cheesy and shit but these are big fucking issues and shit you know I thought it was a kind of to me a new genre that I kind of created and it felt really really good
0: your biggest disappointment in show business and what you did from that defeat to do something that moved your career to the next level
1: well it's this and i'm after this i'm just going to go to starbucks
0: no really what's your biggest disappointment in show business
1: um oh i got this big shit about i i was so good at selling things that i while i while kenny versus benny was on the air during the break i went and sold a show to fx and I'm green. I didn't know, like, it would piss off Comedy Central if I got a show on FX. God, fucking, you know, Jim Belushi can go sell 15 fucking shows on 10 different fucking networks. I can't, uh, you know, I get a shot to go do another show. I can't do it. And guess what? You can't fucking do it. So that's that's kind of traumatized me. It's probably the reason why I haven't done anything in a while. Because it was just, you know, I, I was like number 18 on IMDb you know because i had two competing shows on two it just it's just the way it worked out i didn't plan it i didn't want it to happen like that and uh and it was just this fucking you know shitstorm that happened and that's what happened i both broadcasters were like fuck you why are we trying to make you big when you're on another channel and that's it but i didn't know i thought god everybody has two fucking shows on different channels I just wasn't big enough to do that. But wouldn't they know before they bought the show? No, my agent would not let me tell Comedy Central that I sold the show before it came out, which was my mistake. I should have just done it. That's how I fucked up.
0: So you sold Testies right before Kenny and Spenny was to air on Comedy Central?
1: No, it had already aired for a year. So,
0: all right. So John Langraff knows at FX that you have a show on Comedy Central. Yeah, but John Langraff, I don't know if they were... You know, he they were competing He's a very smart man. And a very nice man. He knows what he's doing. So he picked up your show knowing that it was on Comedy Central. Yeah. And then they
1: said, oh, from South Park writer. And I worked there for three weeks and got fired. So it's like, not only are they mad at me, and then all of a sudden he said, oh, the South Park guy. It wasn't even a South Park guy. I sat in the room and tried to, you know, order a salad or Kentucky Fried Chicken. You know, it's like that's basically all I did. And it just just got worse and worse. And how many episodes of Testies do? Thirteen. And then the market, the U.S. market collapsed. So I'm, you know, it, it, they just gave like forty million bucks to the guys from Sunny, and they had to cancel all their shows. You know, so I don't know. I, I'm sure i had to do with it, but they were paying nothing for the show. I could have kept going. It was it was also done too fast, testies. I was I just kind of got I got caught up in the whole Hollywood thing where people are like, you, we're giving you a show. But don't you think if the people and came Spenny was walk- so shitty like like it was just the worst time because he was such a fucking asshole and was and he just deserved to get douched so bad for being such a dick that like to have like who gets offered your own fucking show by fox like like it's so rare like it's like you can't turn down that opportunity no matter who the fuck you are well you know Chappelle can and other people can i'm just some fucking shitty little schmo from toronto you know, but whatever. Uh, listen, it, it, I learned my uh, you know I learned my lesson. I fucked it all up. I'm the guy that suffered for it. You know, but whatever. Well,
0: now you're gonna turn it all around. Could come Thanksgiving, you're gonna I have could. a
1: full pilot. I know, cause it's been like four years since I did anything.
0: Thanksgiving, you're gonna have a full scripted pilot. You're gonna blow
1: people away. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You put something great in front of somebody, they buy it. And when have you not done something great? Uh, right now. Okay.
0: So you've done 91 episodes of Kenny and Spenny. 13 13
1: testes and six trying for the Wills.
0: That's right. So you've done over 110 episodes. And how many of those episodes would you consider to be shitty?
1: Two, one. 1%. And that's Spenny's fault. They're shitty, not mine. It's the collaborative idiots that you work with that end up fucking everything up.
0: I think you're going to do okay. Okay, you're a good egg. Last question. What advice do you have for the young person or anybody who's like living in a garage somewhere, piling up the ants, taking a salt and pepper and ketchup packets from carl's jr and just trying to figure out how to get to the next level not only as an on-camera person but as a producer and sell and get to the point that they can have the kind of career that you've had
1: now you can do it easy in your fucking underwear in your bathroom on youtube everybody has their own network I say don't do stand-up, because there's no executives anymore out there going, I'm going to give you a shot, kid, and giving you a fucking sitcom. You can play to 7 billion people at home, on your fucking computer, on your fucking iPhone. You can make a movie on an iPhone and win an Oscar. You really can. Like if you you can do anything at home alone with nothing. No one's ever had that opportunity. We never had that opportunity. We you got YouTube now. You could be maybe you could be a billionaire. You can. And it could be one stupid song or it could be one bit or whatever. Everybody owns a network. Stop doing stand up in clubs, do it on YouTube. Hone your fucking skills and make it there, cause you why play to fifty people when you can play to five, seven billion, you know. And if your shit's good, cream rises to the top. It'll spider out there and you'll fucking make it. But it's got to be good, or or really bad. Uh, you know, it it's one or the other. And it's a crapshoot, anyhow. Listen, everybody said don't do this, don't go into the biz, don't do it. It's a it's a crapshoot. And then one of my friends, Peter Sussman, said, "Look, it's a crapshoot." You know, and people win a lot of cash, you know, in Vegas. So other people do it. You should do it. If that's what you want to do, go do it. But don't whine and bitch. It's not like nothing, nothing gets handed to you. It's work. It's so much work. And Neil Simon, back to Neil Simon said, it's all in the work. Uh, don't worry about anything that people focus on making money and how do I get this and how do I get that? It's just like you said, make that fucking pilot. Just do the fucking work. And if it's great, it'll be found, you know, and they could, you know, you can, you can sell. It's not, it's not hard to sell a show to a, to, you know, Kevin Riley. It's hard to make a great fucking show to sell to him. But if you have anything that that's fucking great and you put it on YouTube, you, you have a, you have the hottest show in, in America, you know, it's just, you just got to do it. Now, enough talk. I sounded coffee bean for 10 fucking years we're listening to idiots try and do their shit or talk about garbage. Write the fucking script and shut up. Awesome.
0: Awesome. You will be found, Kenny Hotz, on this podcast and you will be heard. Thank you. And this was amazing and I'm very, very grateful. Thank you for
1: having me. It's, it really is an honor. You are a legend.
0: All right. As always, this has been another episode of Industry Standard with me, Perry Katz. <laughs> And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory.
1: I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamer. Stay they have all to gain It's never quite over Till so it all feels the same